This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome, guys, to episode 382 of Behind the Show podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dr. Chris Colvin. Now, every so often I will record an episode and know that it has to go out immediately. All the other ones take about three or four weeks before I put them out, but this one is extremely timely. So Chris discusses a host of topics from the incredible traumatic high school experience that he had, being one of the ER physicians on call at the Fort Hood terror attack, his incredible perspective of COVID-19 the last few months in one of the most middle-of-the-road common sense discussions that I've heard in a long time, 
the series of books that he's written, and so many more elements. Before we get to that interview, as I say, every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. So that moment of time that it takes really does pay dividends. So please just take that minute moment to rate the show. It truly does help. And this is a library for you, whether individually, whether organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else on planet Earth that needs to hear them. And this particular one needs to be heard by everyone. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Chris Colvin. Enjoy. Chris, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast. I know we've been going back and forth a lot on uh, through Messenger, I guess, but I'm so glad that we're actually finally sitting, getting to sit down and talk now. Oh, same here, and I, I appreciate you uh, reaching out and, and uh, just asking me to come on your show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great conversation. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Um, I'm actually at home, and I'm in Central Texas, and... Uh, Actually, have a had a nice day off, so uh, just kind of doing all the usual boring stuff you get to do around the household when you're not having to work. <laughs> Fantastic! All right, well then, I love to start at the beginning chronologically. So, where were you born? And then tell me about your family unit, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, no. Uh, so, I was born in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and my dad was actually an OB/GYN uh, resident at John Peter Smith up there. And then when he finished residency, uh, we moved down to central Texas, um, outside of San Antonio. And that's where he set up his practice. And he basically practiced for 37, 38 years. He just retired a couple years ago. I'm the oldest of four. Um, and I, it's two boys and two girls. And um, my mom um, had a college degree and was studying for a graduate degree. And she stayed at home and raised us for a few years until I got into, I think, middle school. And then she went on to become uh, a LPC, so a counselor, and did that for a little while, and then becoming a school counselor. And um, and it was really neat kind of watching her go through that transformation um, when she started having her own career, and it was something she found a lot of uh, personal reward in. Um, and then um, you know did what everybody else did, went through high school. Um, <laughs> a lot a lot of stories about high school. Um, and which ultimately impacted college. And then I went to college up at TCU for a year, and then that didn't work out, and I went down to San Marcos and um, and just tried to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And then I always tell everybody this story because I, I, uh, I meet a lot of pre-med students in, in what I do, um, and they're always scared and hopeful that they'll have a chance to go to medical school. You know, it's hard because there's thousands of people applying for a handful of seats every year. And, um, I, I had gone through a lot of personal loss in high school. I always tell everybody I went to more funerals of my friends than I did birthday parties. And I think that affected me and I didn't know how to process that. So when I went to college my first year at TCU. Um, luckily I was a straight A student in high school and I took all these AP classes, but I didn't go to class my first year at TCU. And, uh, I would just show up on the exam day and just take the exams. And, um, and so I, 
when I finally decided I wanted to go to medical school, I actually had a 2.2 GPA, uh, which is horrific uh, for wanting to go to professional school. And, and so um, I got a job initially as a physical therapy aide at the hospital my dad worked at. And I was like, well, maybe I can be a physical therapist, you know. And then when I started talking to them, you have to have <laughs> almost a 4.0 to get into physical therapy school. And I realized that no matter what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, it was going to take a lot of hard work. And so I sat down. I went to pre-med advisor, Dr. Benjamin, and talked to her. Um, she told me I'd never get into medical school, so I should just give up, uh, which, of she course, sounds, motivated me more. She sounds like a great advisor, just to put that oh, in. Oh, man. She was, uh, <laughs> she, was a, she was a cellular biologist. And, uh, yeah, she just told me there was no way I was ever going to be a doctor. And, you know, and, and I think at the time it's like, I realized it was my own doing, you know, I don't have any, I didn't have anybody else to blame but myself. And I knew it was just going to be me that was going to pull myself out of it. And so I, I sat down that night and, uh, I figured out if I made straight A's for the next three, three and a half years of college, I'd have a good enough grade to get into medical school. And that's what I did. I changed my whole life. I was powerlifting still at the time. I used to compete uh, in powerlifting. And so I would work out, go home, study for six or seven hours, wake up, and do it all over again. And then I uh, finally got into medical school. And then, of course, all the stuff that happened with that and residency and so forth. But that's kind of my, my background, where I came from, um, how I got to where I am today. Beautiful. We're well, going back to high school then. So if, if you're okay talking about it, you know, one of the, the re- reoccurring themes that I think we've just realized more recently and people that are trying to, you know, open the dialogue when it comes to mental health in our professions is that there's a, there's a large part of it that's, you know, childhood trauma. That's, that's what we brought into our profession. So, you know, what were some of the incidences that you had in those high school years that, you know, that led you to that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so early on, um, December 19th, my sophomore year, uh, I was actually grounded. I got in trouble with my parents, but everybody was going to go over to uh, my childhood friend's house to play football. Uh, school had just let out for the two-week break for Christmas. And um, one of my other childhood friends realized that his older sister's boyfriend had left a loaded deer rifle in the pickup truck. And there's a lot of little kids everywhere. There must have been, I don't know, 25, 30 people there. And uh, he went to unload the rifle and it discharged and it ricocheted off the cab and it struck our friend Brett right in the chest. Um, and a, it was tough because this is a small town. And, of course, they rushed him to the ER and he didn't survive. Um, the surgeon that had operated on him I ended up working with later on, uh, years later when I was a tech. But um, And so then, you know, I, I got the call. Um and it was weird because I was supposed to be there that day, but because I got in trouble, I wasn't. So I felt guilty. And in this, I guess, stupid kind of teenage way, I thought maybe I could have done something if I was there, uh, which is, of course, ludicrous. But, it, you know, you're just trying to wrap your mind around this. And I was 15 years old. And so I went, we went to his funeral. And um, that was when I realized that um, we weren't invincible and that, you know, teenagers uh, could be just taken immediately. And as you know, with what you, you've done in your career, I mean, I think the hardest thing for a community to wrap their head around is a young life lost to trauma. It's so, uh, unpredictable. It's so random. It's so cruel. It's so unfair. And so we were processing all this and I, I had known Brett since I was, um, five or six years old. 
And so then the next year, um, so that was that was December nineteenth, my sophomore year. In August of my uh, uh, going into my junior year, um, we had just finished doing football, and of course, you know, you do two days and three days, so you work out in the morning, you do film in the middle of the day, you go home, take a nap, you come back, and you work out in the evening. And so we had just started two days, um, and. I had gone home and had taken a nap and my, my baby brother came in and woke me up and said somebody wrecked their truck in our front pasture and we lived out in the country. My dad uh, raises cattle and of course he's got these huge cedar post fence that are, you know, 12 inches thick covered in barbed wire and our running back, uh, Joseph, uh, had snapped off about a dozen of those at the ground level with his pickup truck and hadn't been wearing a seatbelt. And so I run up to the field and his truck is upside down. It's on fire. Uh, the tires are still spinning, and then I see this body. I, of course, I didn't know who it was. I see this body about 100 feet away, and one of his buddies was walking around the scene kind of confused and didn't know where he was at, and so I had my little brother talk to him. And this is before cell phones and everything else. We just had landlines, um, and uh, I run over there, and I realize it's Joseph. It's my buddy. It's uh, it's our running back, and um, – he was twisted in a very unnatural way, um, and I knew enough not to move him. I, I knew I didn't want to make it worse, um, but he was already starting to gurgle on a lot of blood and whatnot. He couldn't breathe, so I tried to stabilize his head. I pulled blood clots out of his mouth. I tried to breathe for him. He had a pulse, so then I ran all the way back down the Caliche Road to our house, called 911, and I, and I ran back to Joseph, and, and all I could do was, was sit there. I, I told that story a couple years ago at one of our paramedic firefighter graduations, um, and it was a little embarrassing because I choked up at the end of it and started to cry. But what I wanted to impress upon these young medics was the eternity that I waited for help by Joseph's sides. It was the longest 20 minutes of my life. And people are um, often looking to the horizon for those lights to show up. There's a desperation of bystanders waiting for that trained person to come, and that ambulance is bringing a wealth of hope. Um, it's a lot of responsibility to put on medics and firefighters for that, but that's how the community feels uh, when when that's, that call is made. And um, uh, my dad was a doctor at the hospital, and you know I, I got in my car and we followed everybody back to the hospital. Nobody would talk to us in the waiting room, of course, because we're trying to save his life. He was too sick to stay there, so they shipped him out to San Antonio, and um, they uh, they they stopped life support on him about two days later. And so they called me and let me know they were going to do it. Um, and I had also just injured my knee, so my mom drove me there, and um, I went and spent probably a good hours at his bedside right before he died. So that was really hard, and, it, and as stupid as it sounds, I felt some kind of responsibility that my dad was a physician. Like surely I should know something. Um, surely I should be able to do something. It was the lack of knowledge and the lack of any, I just felt helpless. Uh, and it was very, very hard to process. I was very, very angry that year. And then the next year, um, Billy died and Billy was our defensive captain. And this was almost unheard of in a small Texas town. Like you might have one kid die every 20, 30 years in some kind of horrific accident. And this was, um, this was just back to back to back, and it was all my friends. I mean, it's all of our little close close knit friends, and uh, and so we, Billy had had issues with his grades. He wasn't able to play the last few games of the season, but then we won, and we were heading to the district playoffs. And he came back, and um, 
we got to play and and uh, we lost uh, the last game on a Friday night. And so the next day it was our it was last football game any of us were probably ever going to play for the rest of our lives. And so we were going to go do what a lot of Texas kids do, then go out and get drunk somewhere in the country. And so we were going to go to a friend's house and do that. And I was on my way out there. Um, and as I drove up, there's all these lights and sirens suddenly arriving on a vehicle that was upside down on fire. And I saw this body face down on the asphalt. And of course, you know, it, it was charred and, and they were cutting clothes and everything else. I didn't know who it was. I just remember praying really hard and thinking, um, you know, please, God, don't let this be anybody else I know. We've lost so many people. And I make it out to the party. And I told him what I saw. and Everybody just realized it was Billy. He was drunk and he was heading back into town to get more beer. And so then we all get in the back of a truck, which was stupid. And the person driving was drunk. And so we were all just trying to get back there. And um, we almost got thrown out of the truck a couple of times. So then I finally just got out of the truck at the, at the scene. They drove on to town and this little old guy in a tow truck decided to drive me miles an hour. It took forever to get there. We get to the hospital and the same thing, just like it was with Joseph. Everybody was in the waiting room and nobody knew what to do. And so I kind of regret this. Um, but I called my dad and I started crying and I begged him for help. I said, no one's telling us what's going on with Billy. I feel like this is just like losing Joseph all over again. Can you please come up here? And my dad was an OBGYN. He was on call every other night. He worked every other night. He was tired, but you know, his son was begging for his help. So he came up there and and he and um, Dr. Dwyer uh, took Billy to the OR. And, you know, a lot of things happened that night to me that I think affected me for the rest of my life. Um, I remember going to the hospital chapel and I went to my knees. I probably pr prayed harder than I've ever prayed in my life. I was crying. I was sweating. I, I probably prayed for almost two and a half hours straight. And then I heard Billy's mom wailing in the hallway and I, I knew I knew it was over. Um I leave the hospital chapel and I look down the hospital hallway and I see my dad and he's, he's got his scrubs on, he's got blood all over his legs. And I've seen my, my dad cry twice in my life. Um, one was at my grandmother's funeral. And then this night I, he just came up to me and this very strong man that I looked up to, um, just broke down and, uh, I had to shift gears from losing another friend to consoling my dad, which was which was kind of a, a trip. But that was a hard night, and I remember um, feeling like my prayers had failed, that God had taken too many people from us, and I got really mad at God. I was very mad at him that night, and they wanted me to speak at Billy's funeral, and I had a really hard time with that because I didn't want to be up there. I, I was having a hard time with everything. Um, and, uh, anyways, they, they convinced me to do it and I got up there and, and did what I had to do. Um, and, and then that was, that was it that he, he died, uh, November, November 15th, uh, of our senior year. Um, so with all that and being a teenager, um, I didn't know what I was feeling or what I was doing. I didn't know who to talk to. I was having nightmares of Joseph and, of course, seeing Billy's charred body on the highway. Um, and I just didn't know how to process that. And I was 17, 18 years old and um, just didn't even know where to start. And, and luckily, I, I had powerlifting. And um, I just won the, the Texas State Powerlifting Championship as a teenager. And so I just, I just threw myself into that. 
Um, I didn't care about college anymore. I just wanted to lift weights, and I, I thought I was going to be the next uh, Ed Cohen <laughs> or uh, Anthony Clark. Um, I met I met Anthony Clark uh, at one of the uh, meets that we did, um, and I just I just squatted 600 and pulled 600 in my first meet uh, competition wise. And he was, uh, he held the record at the time for squats at 1,024. Um, so anyways, I wanted to be those guys. I wanted to be, uh, the strong man. And, uh, I remember my dad was kind of devastated because here I was a straight A student and I just wanted to be, just be a powerlifter. I wanted to just eat cheeseburgers and do squats all day. Um, so that's what happened. I, I got to college and, and looking back, obviously I was suffering from depression. Um, I was suffering from, um, I'm not sure if you qualified as PTSD, but I was definitely experiencing my first bouts of insomnia. Um, and, uh, I have OCD. And so my OCD really kind of like went off like a thousand fold to where, you know, I was checking doorknobs when I leave my apartment, I'm always checking my pockets and all that kind of stuff. And I noticed these, these changes in my behavior, but again, I didn't, I didn't have a way to process that here. I am 18 now. Uh, going to be 19, a freshman in college. And I just, I just decided to work out. I played volleyball. I, I just didn't study. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't focus. You know, you, you list all these symptoms, you know, sleep deprivation, inability to focus, uh, anhedonia. So you're losing, uh, joy in the things that you once enjoyed. Um, because of losing Joseph and Billy, I didn't really watch football that year at all. I couldn't, um, when I graduated high school uh, that Christmas, it was just a few weeks after Billy had died that December. I didn't know this, but my dad had bought my f- football jersey um, and presented it to me as a gift. And I think that was the first time I had cried since Billy died. And it just it calls just all just kind of came out then. So that that next year or so was really hard. Um, and you know, it, it's just one of those things where. You, you meet enough people, you live long enough, you realize a lot of people have, uh, like you said, tragic backgrounds. But I know now, looking back on my life, that those experiences led me into trauma and emergency medicine. And when I had finally taken a job as a physical therapy aide, you know, I didn't do much. I, all my, my job was to mop floors and clean up all the dirty stuff. And they had these aluminum tank whirlpools that you do wound care in and you take care of burn victims in. Um, and it was like, I'd been there maybe a few weeks doing my job and that was all I was doing was scrubbing this dirty whirlpool down. And we get this call that there's a burn victim that they're bringing down, um, uh, to the whirlpool room and the general surgeon was coming and everybody was coming and they wheel him in and it just absolutely broke me because it was one of my best friends. It was Carl Jackson and, uh, he was our other running back. It was, it was him and Joseph. And Carl was working at a steel plant called SMI, and there was an explosion, and he got blown off the catwalk into a large vat of molten slag. Oh, God. And I just, I'll, I know you know this feeling. It was the first time I, I smelled burning flesh on a living, crying person. And um, it was my buddy. And I just started crying. I was so embarrassed. It was my job. Here I am at work. But it, it was Carl. And I was his lead blocker. <laughs> on the football team. So we were really close. I mean, I was the guy who ran down the field blocking everybody for him. And we just, you just, you know, you bond that way. And we pull all the stuff off him. He, he's still smoldering. He's, his clothes are smoldering. He's got all these 
I don't know if people know what slag is, but these small molten bits of, of wasted metal that happens in the smelting process. And it was like he had been shot in the back with 2,000 red-hot BBs. And so he's crying, and he's holding my arm, and he's like, Chris, please don't let me die. And, of course, I have no knowledge of anything. I'm just a physical therapy orderly. That's all I'm doing. And I just kept promising him I wouldn't let him die. And um, we're picking all this metal out of him. And I remember I didn't realize how hot the metal was, and they just gave me some, some pickups and tweezers and said, just start picking it all out of his skin. It's still burning him. And we're picking all this stuff off, and, and some of it fell onto my rubber glove, and it melted through the rubber glove into my hand. And that, that's when it – I just – you know, I, you don't realize how long that metal stays that hot. Um, and, and I just – it just brought back everything all over again. It brought back Joseph and Billy and Brett. Um, and, uh, and Carl lived. He survived, and he's doing great now, and we're still in touch. He always teases me. He said, you saved my life that day. And I really didn't do anything but, but take metal out of his, his body. But that was the moment that I decided I wanted to be a doctor. And that was the moment when I realized that, albeit I was naive at the time, I thought, I will save the next Joseph. I will save the next Billy. I will save the next Carl. And I will dedicate my life to doing that. And that's where it all began. That's when I started to focus on it. Well, that is such a powerful story. And again, when you said that you your grades were bad that year, I mean, I because I, I'm married to the same story. So my wife was doing very well um, in her road to opticianry school. And then her boyfriend at the time before me took his own life. And she had the same kind of knock-on effect. You know, she went from... You know, I, I I'm not sure if it was straight A's, but, you know, a great student to a complete spiral downhill. And then just like your your earlier part of your story, then have spent years and years and years recovering from that. But what's sad is it wasn't that she just, you know, oh, I'm going to be a quote unquote piece of shit. It was like life happened, you know, and then there was a knock on effect. And, and there's a parallel to that, not even close to the level of trauma and what you personally witnessed, but... I lost one of my school friends when, when we were 18 and we graduated at 16. So I'd been gone for a couple of years, but he basically drove into a, the side of a house, you know, and that I'd never forget this. That was when I realized my own mortality. When that coffin went by in the church, I broke yep. down and I struggled with that for months and months. Like, fuck, I'm going to, I'm actually going to die. I'm not, yep. you know, and it, it, to that, just that one minute moment compared to what you experienced shook me for a long, long time. So I, I can only imagine, you know, I mean, you know, like you said, that is, that's not a little bit of trauma. And yeah, absolutely. That was PTSD. <laughs> like, you know, how can anyone say that wasn't, you know, yeah. so much trauma that it absolutely affected you in an incredibly severe way? Yeah, it was, it was bad. I mean, I, that, that year, um, we lost another friend, Chad wrecked his motorcycle and then Blake committed suicide. And, and it's just like all these people in our class were gone. And, but, but like you just said, um, you have, you have two paths to choose at that point. Um, and, and I just, I just couldn't quit. I just couldn't do it. I could not, I couldn't do that because I knew I needed to do something. I was just lost and I had no direction. I didn't know what I needed to do. And, um, I was angry for a long time, long time. I mean, it was great for powerlifting. 
Uh, you know, it was great for bar fights and, and being a bouncer and, and Austin and stuff. I mean, that's great, but that's not great long term. That's not a, a that's not a path in life anyone ever really wants to walk. And it's it's something that um, I wish I could go back now to my younger self and and first of all tell my younger self it's okay. You didn't do any of this stuff to any of these people. It's not your fault. You know, you didn't you didn't let Joseph die. You didn't there was nothing to do. You know, it I, I blame myself a lot it, as weird as it is, and I didn't talk to my parents about it was the other thing. Um I just was just angry and I didn't talk to anybody. Um and, and when I saw Carl, I immediately thought he was gonna die, like my other friends did. And when he didn't I realized that was the impact that medicine could potentially have on the worst case scenario for anyone in, in their, their given moment in their life. And, and it gave me hope. And it was the first time I'd had hope in a long time. I, I, I stopped going to church. I stopped praying. I mean, I was raised Methodist. Um, and my mom didn't care how late you stayed up Saturday night. She was dragging you to church the next day. And so I went to Bible camp and Bible study groups and Bible youth. I mean, I, so for me to walk away from my religion at that time in my life, um, I really was lost. Um, and, you know, it, it, thankfully, I think you probably agree. I think a lot of people agree. Um, going outside or exercising in general is a great outlet. It's a great, um, it's a, it's a great way to intervene with your own spirit. Um, and I, and I think for certain, um, I'm very thankful that I had the gym. I'm very thankful that I was still able to, uh, be out in the country and do things out in the woods. And that kind of helped me kind of process some of these things, but it's, it is, it's, it's, it's hard. It's when I, when I meet people now that have had something very similar, um, kind of like you're doing with me, I guess I like to sit down and listen to them. I like to listen to how they processed it, how they found their way, if they're still struggling and I try to see if there's something I can do, um, you know, and, and I don't, I don't like to make the conversations about me, but I'll tell them I experienced something similar and I'll share something with them just to let them know that they're normal and that their response is, is, is a normal physiologic response to something that is abnormal in life. Exactly. Well, and that's just it. I mean, you know, we, we focus a lot on what we see in a lot of PTSD discussions, you know, and I think that's why the, the backstory element needs to be discussed too. But focusing on the trauma that the average, you know, physician, um, you know, corrections officer, whoever it is that's exposed to some of the horrific things that, you know, most civilians don't see is, is just that it is abnormal. The human, you know, psyche is not supposed to be exposed to that level of trauma so whether it's military vets whether it's firefighters if if that's suppressed if that's pushed down if that's seen as weakness if you discuss it i mean it's it's not if it's when it's gonna it's gonna wreck you in some way shape or form absolutely absolutely and i think that one one of the things i really enjoy uh about what you're doing is normalizing that conversation um and i think that that's that's crucial um because there's a lot out there now talking about mental health and, and um, you know, moral and emotional trauma and, and, and what have you. And I think that especially in our fields to normalize that conversation, to just make it part of a daily discourse um, is, is the first huge step. 
mean, like I said, I didn't talk to anybody for years. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know what to talk about. I didn't even know how to ask for help. Um, and, and that was just, you know, just a, a short time in my life. And so, you know, letting people know now that when you're feeling that or going through that, that there's, there's lots of points of contact. There's lots of people that want to help. There's lots of ways to be able to, you know, bind with your tribe, to bind with your unit, your station, um, your department and, and share through things. That's, that's something I feel very strongly about. Um, every time we have a code, every time we run through, you know, cardiac or traumatic arrest or what have you, I always insist on a debrief immediately after we call time of death. Uh, we, we do a debrief also for people that survive, but there's still lots of things that need to be done. So that debrief usually happens later. But when someone passes away, it's a very solemn moment for everybody involved. Um, uh, you know, a lot of us kind of put up this protective armor. We use sarcasm and satire and dark humor and whatnot. But there, there's never a moment where that happens, even as long as I've been doing this, um, where it's not a profound moment. You just watched a human being transcend uh, away from Earth, and, and they're gone. And you were there for that moment, and it's just as significant as when someone is born and being able to deliver a baby and being there for a birth. Being there for a death is the conclusion of that person's life cycle, and it's a very um, very poignant uh, moment. And so we always get very quiet. Um, you know, I, I don't ask anybody to pray or anything like that because some people don't believe in, in, in prayer, and I want everybody to feel welcome in the room. We just we give a moment of silence instead. And then we go through uh, the process of how we try to save that person. And the basic premise, of course, is to see if there's ever anything you can learn from that moment to apply the next time it happens. But for me, what I found to be more impactful is it gives everyone a chance to exhale. And it gives every chance, everybody a, a moment of catharsis to kind of just defervesce and say, this is how I felt about this. And what I hope long term is that because they initiated the conversation of that very difficult moment in, in the moment that they will continue talking about that afterwards and, and it at least opens the dialogue with me uh, and everybody else that it's okay to express this now and they keep talking about it afterwards absolutely i mean I, I just got back from california and i sat with my old crew from anaheim who you know i haven't been with them for 12 years now i think it is um you know, we, you know, we still ran through some of the calls we ran, some of the calls that are in the book, you know, and because it still haunts us. And actually my captain who, when I say haunt, not like debilitating, but it's there. It's not going to go away. Um, but my, my captain I work with, he actually was a lot more open in, in this second interview we did. And he, he actually told me that the very first call he ran as a young fireman back in the, the eighties, I think it was, um, almost mirrored the call that I wrote about. So he had a very, very similar call. And he said that when we st when we arrived in that scene, he flashed immediately back to 30 years prior to that call he was on before. So, I mean, it's, it's a constant thing. You know, we need to, to be always, I mean, not like, you know, every day <laughs> over, over every meal. But yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes up organically, it needs to be discussed. Absolutely. And I think um, for me personally, I can't speak for other people. I really had to work toward some semblance of peace, of spiritual peace for myself um, after doing this for so long. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. And um, 
there's just something you just have to accept as the universe uh, as a whole um, in life and death and the, the natural oscillation between those two extremes that you'll often experience in the medical field and, and just kind of come up with that sense of peace. I mean, and I, when you talk about these things, I think it's also important for people that are not in the field when they're listening to, to not be shocked, to not be overtly worried or anything, but just to allow the person to talk and just to listen. You don't have to say anything, um, meaningful in the moment. You just need to allow that person to say it out loud into the ether with you there. Um, because when I say things like, and it's true, uh, you know, I tell my brother or my wife, you know, I, I still see the, the face of every dead child I've ever managed, every dead baby, um, every dead adolescent, um, most of all the adults too, but I can vividly remember every single kid. And, and, and those faces visit me in my dreams at night. Um, and sometimes I'll wake up from them and stuff. And it used to be, I'd wake up sweaty, um, kind of, you know, palpitations and stuff like that. But now I wake up and I'm actually at peace. As odd as that may sound, I'm at peace. I get up, I go over, I get a glass of water. I say a prayer in remembrance of the people that I dreamed about. Um, and I think about it and then I thank God, um, for, for what I have in life and for giving me another day. And for some reason, after I have that, that cold water, I go back to sleep. I go right back to sleep and I wake up and I, and I don't feel uh, the way I used to years ago. And I, it's taken me a long time to get to that level of acceptance and, and to realize that I am not personally responsible for all the horrible things that happen in the world to good people. But I will do everything I can in the moment to mitigate the consequences. Speaking of that, just one kind of side note as well. What I have witnessed, and I'd just love to get your perspective on this, is that um, you know, I've, I would like to think I've trained very diligently. Am I the best at skill X, Y, or Z? Absolutely not. I know, I know fellow firefighters and medics that are better than me in, in all of those, but you know, I've tried to elevate myself, that collective mass as, as high as I can for my own personal journey as a fire medic. Um, but one thing, just like you said, I, I've, I've talked about this a lot, but I've never had a code save, for example, in 14 years. But what I lent into was the fact that I know I was prepared. You know, the people that, we we didn't save in, in fires. You know, I know that we did everything that we could and it wasn't a huge amount. Most people, you know, self-extricated before. Um, but leaning into that knowledge that I did train diligently seemed to be a good, you know, uh, buffer when it comes to mental health. Um, what have you observed with yours? Like when you have lost them, is there that, that kind of self-talk that you did everything you could and you had trained for that moment? Absolutely. I think, I think what a normal process is, uh, for me and, and, and people that I've spoken with, there's the traumatic event, right? And then there's the realization that that person's gone and you've exhausted everything that you have. You've spent all the time on that, on that human being. Um, and you know, because of data and because of science and because of literature that they're not, there's no way they're coming back. You know, and there's different things that we use in medicine for that, right? That, that, that you and I kind of talked about. You know, we know that what asystole means. We know what PEA means. We know what VFib means. You know, there are certain cardiac rhythms that you know you can work with and certain things that you, you can't do anything for. But you still do all the things that have been proven in the literature. And then when that's all exhausted, you, you take a step back. And then for me, I always have, I have to be the person who officially calls time of death. I take that role very seriously. Um, 
you know, I, I call time of death. Um, you know, I usually look at the digital clock on the wall when that happens, you know, and, and I remember the numbers. And I, I do the debrief with everybody. And then what I do with my mind, and I'm sure you've done the same thing, is that your mind immediately starts to play that scene back over and over and over again. Like you go through this phase of rewind and play, rewind and play, rewind and play. And you do it over and over and over again. But I actually think that's a good thing because you are to a microscopic level analyzing your own performance and the performance of your team for that event. And when you do that enough times and you've been prepared and you're well-read in all the literature and you've practiced a thousand times, it does. It brings you a sense of solace because you're, you, you know, I did everything humanly possible for this person. I've analyzed every single detail from the type of laryngoscopic blade I chose to the number of times we did pulse checks and pushed epinephrine. Um, you're going through that methodically, and, and that is a big part of what brings me a sense of peace. I think the ones that, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but the ones where you felt like things were very clunky, um, things didn't go well, um, you know, the light bulb and laryngoscope is out, or um, someone lost a stylet to the ET tube, or you can't get an IV, so you use an IO, and then the IO infiltrates. You know, all those things that happen, those are harder, I think, to process. And then I'm also the medical director of my emergency department and the chief of medicine of that hospital. And so then I have to kind of step back as an administrator and going, okay, do we have the right equipment? Um, were these personnel uh, appropriately trained? Is there more that we can do? Should we run another simulation? All those things. And so my mind, for every death that I have uh, in the ER, my mind kind of latches onto that and perseverates for about a week or so. Um, my wife is used to it. I'll come home and say, you know, some days are bad. Like you'll lose two or three patients. Like right now with COVID, it's just awful. And you'll come home and, uh, my 12 year old son, my oldest now, um, is the one who's always the first to ask, how was your day? And then he looks at me and he holds my hand. He said, did you lose anybody? And so he always is the first one after I shower because I come home from COVID scrubs, you know, so I I go through the back door and everything and I shower. But then when I'm clean, he's always the first one. He's so loving. He's, he comes up to me and asks me and I'll tell him, I said, I lost somebody today. And he'll just hug me for like 30 seconds. And man, that just does wonders. It really does. And, and I don't go into details with him because I don't need him being sleepless at night. But then that's when the process for me begins. I talk about it when my wife comes home. My wife is also a physician. She's an anesthesiologist. So it's nice to have her there because I run some of the medical scenarios by her. And, um, and so the process of talking about it, of processing it, of sitting down, reading another article or two on that subject so that I, I make sure that I've rehearsed everything mentally. That's how I get through those kinds of losses. Beautiful. Well, staying on that for a moment, that's a good kind of segue to get to the COVID topic that we, you know, I said we discussed at some point. Um, with you both being in the fields and, you know, both pertinent to, you know, understanding the disease processes and, and managing airways and those kind of things. Um, what have you witnessed? I know you did a, a conversation with another um, podcast at the beginning of this and you were just kind of staring into the abyss at that point. What are some of the things that you've seen um, without loading the question as far as the magnitude of this, but then also, you know, the the end of life for some of these patients that, that are suffering from it? Um, I, I would like to start off with first that um, everybody from 
all of our, our first responders, our firefighters, our paramedics, our police officers, everybody who is from the field bringing these people in from their residences um, all the way through the hospital care and everything else, Everyone who's involved in every single aspect of that has done a, a great job in, in our country, especially in our region. It's a very hard thing to do. I think that I would ask that in the future, especially in the next 12 months or so, keep an eye out for everybody um, for, for depression and for insomnia and PTSD because we are seeing a lot of people that are ultimately dying and we can't do anything about it. And there is some significant moral injury uh, for everyone who's having to, to, to be involved with that. And I will say that in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, it was horrific. Um, I, and what I try to remind everybody is you have to remember this virus has never been on planet Earth ever. And it, yes, it, it, it came out of a lab and, and whatnot. But the fact is, once it was out of the gates, it hit, it hit humanity running. And, and so many human beings' immune systems have never seen anything specifically like this. They've seen things very similar. Um, and so right off the bat, it was just, just devastating. And we were having to start from scratch about knowing the basic tendencies of the body and approaching very similar viruses as, as COVID-19. And then extrapolating from that what we could expect to see um, in people's responses and in outcomes and, of course, mortality or the number of deaths. And, of course, in the beginning, the numbers were all over the place. But, you know, we're, we're trying to, to prognosticate something that um, has never been seen before. And so you really go back to your fundamentals. So you go back to, well, is it, is it airborne? Is it, is it droplet? Is it, you know, how is this being transmitted? What do we know about similar viruses like SARS and, and whatnot? How do we protect for that? I think a lot of the stress in the beginning, um, and for us, I would say probably, you know, latter part of January, I was part of all the planning committees for this. Uh, I was watching it when it was barely hitting the news waves in December. Um, you know, of course, China had a lockdown on, on information sharing at that time. So we started planning through committees what we were going to do, and, and it got really worrisome when it came to, to PPE. And in a number of masks and gloves and gowns that were actually going to be available. And then you start running simulated scenarios on how many people you could expect per day. And it was pretty evident from the beginning that this was, this was going to be big. And so then from that, we had to think about all the things that we already know um, about that process. Um, and then we just moved forward. And so in the beginning... You know, a lot of these people when their oxygen saturations were in the low to mid 80s, uh, we were innovating them. We were putting them on mechanical ventilators and life support. And it took a while to start realizing they were getting worse by doing so. So all of a sudden we had to start shifting our focus and going against our natural instincts on hypoxemia. And we had to start leaving people oxygenating on non-breathers and high flow oxygen face down, which we call proning. It's a technique that we use with, with ARDS um, and diffuse pulmonary edema. And so we started proning these people and putting them on high flow oxygen and letting them sit there at 85, 86, 87% oxygen saturations for days. And then those people started turning the corner. So that was a very important point, I think, early on in our understanding of this disease process it was about airway management 
how aggressive to get uh, with that, um, what the potential uh, detriment could be to the patient's physiology if we were to intubate them and put them on a mechanical ventilator. You know, people, when we put people on artificial life support, they don't realize the amount of pressure and um, kind of pneumatic barotrauma that we're causing to the lungs and the airways by forcing this air into this person's lungs. And, um, and then, of course, we started discovering how COVID was causing blood clots and making people hypercoagulable. So they were clotting off their arteries and they're clotting off their veins and um, having strokes and heart attacks and all these things all at the same time. And so we were discovering as much as we could. I, early on in all the social media outlets, there was task force, COVID task force, um, especially around Austin. Um, and so I was in a lot of those groups and we were just sharing information as quickly as we could. Um, if one ICU got hit with like a dozen or so patients, they were talking about what they were doing and it was just, it was a very scary and unique time for me in medicine because this was so new and never before have any of the physicians of my generation seen something like this to where we had to literally shift gears 24 hours later after discovering something new. And so what we all agreed was probably, uh, applicable uh, three days prior was now found not to be helpful. And so we're having to move forward with that. And I think a lot of society never gets to see that. There's a process in medicine called uh, M&M conference or morbidity and mortality conference. And that is really where the rubber meets the road for young physicians, where they have to present one of their cases that usually has a bad outcome in front of like 200 seasoned uh, doctors. And those doctors just needle and nickel and dime the presenting uh, young physician over every single decision they made on the entire care of that patient. That, that will induce PTSD. <laughs> but you are, are being judged and questioned on every single aspect of what you're doing, and people are presenting literature and, you know, and whatever. Well, our country actually got to see a real-time live-fire M&M conference this year. They got to see physicians debating each other online. Um, usually discussions that we have behind closed doors were suddenly evident to the public. And it really scared people. And I think that's probably what, what I regret more than anything else was the way that some of my colleagues got really aggressive early on with this. And I think it was because they were functioning out of fear, which I, I completely get. But my role as an ER physician, I have to be the coolest person in the room. I always speak in a very deliberate, kind of monotone type fashion. I speak at this volume of my voice, so everyone has to be quiet. Uh, if you ever ask anybody who's ever worked in codes with me, uh, it's very, very quiet. Um, and besides my voice and a readback, it's very, very calm. It's very quiet for a reason, because you can't think when you're afraid. You can't think when you're really suffering through overt stress. You know, there's a saying you mentioned it in your book. Uh, in the military, we said it all the time, you always fall to your lowest level of training instinctively. And the idea is when they look at stress responses and first responders and, and soldiers and, and, and whatnot, is you, you kind of have this that, that reptilian brain, right? The amygdala and you have the midbrain and everything else. And that's where a lot of your instincts kind of come from and your gross motor movements. When you're scared and stressed, you lose all your fine motor skills um, your, your frontal cortex, it's not functioning very well. So 
I can't do that because 90% of what I do in the ER is my frontal cortex. <laughs> I have to know the drugs. I have to know the doses. I have to be able to communicate clearly so that people can hear me. And so I felt like a lot of my colleagues, when COVID first came out, they lost that aspect of what they did. And when society got to see that kind of fear from the scientific and medical community, I think that's when things started to really kind of go left. Um, on, on how people started to receive information, how they started perceiving, well, does the CDC really know what they're doing? Do these physicians really know what they're doing? Uh, and the fact is we were learning. And that's just basic scientific fundamentals 101. Um, you have a hypothesis. You put it into, into an experiment. The hypothesis uh, is wrong. You fail. You learn from it. You look at your conclusions, and you start over. And that's what America has been able to see 24 hours a day now since this started, and it, it can be kind of exhausting. So for me, the message has always been not to be afraid of it, because you can't be, because if you're afraid of it, you can't think. And if you can't think, you're no longer rational, and then you lose this ability to process and prepare. And, and so my thought was, you need to respect the hell out of this thing. This is killing people. I see it every day. COVID's real. It's killing people, but don't fear it. And I, I think that's just a nuanced perspective that, that I even got some flack over. Um, you know, I had some physicians, physicians telling me, it's like, you should be afraid. You should be telling everyone to be afraid. You know, but I'm an ER doctor. If I was afraid of stuff, I couldn't work in an environment where I'm exposed to hepatitis C every day. I'm exposed to tuberculosis. You know, I'm exposed to COVID and influenza and all these other horrible things. I'm attacked in the ER on a regular basis by my patients. Um, you know, the, the first place the patient went with when they had Ebola up in Dallas was the emergency department. And so we, we can't do our job as, as emergency medicine physicians and as paramedics and firefighters and nurses and police officers if we're afraid of what might happen. We just need to educate ourselves and be prepared and respect it. And then that's where it, just, it came from. Wear your mask, wear your gloves, hand hygiene, social distancing. Um, I am very grateful, knock on wood, none of my providers, physicians, APPs, PAs in my group uh, have come down with COVID um, because we're so methodical and we take it so seriously and we're so respectful of this virus. Um, you know, none of us were cavalier with it and, and, and thought that it was just something ridiculous and we didn't believe in it. We believed in it. We just still had to be able to do our jobs and we still had to be able to save the people that were getting the virus. And so now where we're at... Um, that may have been a little too long-winded for you. I'm sorry. No, it was perfect. But, but where we're at now is, is like my state, for example, Texas, we're seeing a huge surge of COVID. Now, I will tell you that what we all worry about as physicians is, is that there is, when there's this disease, you're worried about the number of positive cases and how quickly it's being transmitted. But at the end of the day, we're really worried about, again, coming back to M&M, we're worried about morbidity and mortality. And so morbidity is when people may have survived, but now they're uh, living in a nursing home or they may have survived in ICU for you know, 45 days, but they have no muscle tone. So they have to learn how to walk again. Like those are those are issues we call morbidity, which still have a lot of other significant negative impacts on that person and on health healthcare resource utilization. And then, of course, the mortality. And I think the news agencies are really laser focused on the number of deaths. And I did an interview on television, I think it was Facebook Live, it was a few weeks ago, and they asked me what I thought about that. I said, you know what I would love to see? I said, the deaths are very important. We have to respect the lives that have been lost. We have to understand the, the horrific impact this is having on the world. 
But I would love to see some news pieces, some stories on the survivors. That's what's going to give people hope. Seeing someone survive through it, seeing someone suffer and struggle but make it gives us hope because all that was being presented at the time was how everyone was dying from this, and it really drove a lot of fear into everyone's hearts. I mean, we ran out of paper towels and toilet paper. Um, you know, people just stopped doing all kinds of stuff that they had to do for their family, and, and they just kind of locked themselves into television 24 hours a day, and it was kind of that whole fear cycle. And it was just trying to break away from that and saying, hey, let's start celebrating the wins. Let's celebrate the victories, uh, the survival be very proud of. And now what we're seeing, the trends are, um, there are still um, innumerable deaths every day. We know that there's about a 10 to 14 day lag between when someone maybe starts initiating symptoms or gets diagnosed with COVID versus when they die. So there's always a lag behind the mortality numbers. So as our Texas numbers spike right now, which, which is what they're doing, of course, unfortunately, we'll probably start seeing the mortality numbers start to trickle in around Thanksgiving. Uh, and that's going to be very sombering. But again, it is real. Um, I'm not being nuanced when I say this, but it is real and you should respect it. And there are things you can do to protect yourself from it and still live your life. And you can protect your loved ones from it. It is not an inescapable tsunami of death coming at you. But you're going to have to have the tools and the mental preparation uh, for just like any other kind of emergency disaster preparedness strategy that you've, you've ever thought about, you know, if your smoke alarms go off, where do you take your kids? Um, if, if your tire blows out, do you know how to change a tire? We do these normal routine things all the time in our life. Well, COVID is now one of those things and we just have to plan for that. And, and so I think that with that, we can move through this and we're learning so much more about it. We have so many different medications out now that we're trialing, that we're trying to, to utilize. Um, you know, some of these antivirals have shown some significant promise. As I'm sure everyone knows right now, a lot of the vaccine trial results are being released and they're very good numbers. Um, not to get bogged down in the politics of it, because I have a whole opinion about why medicine and science should never have been politicized this year. It's, it's caused irreparable damage for generations to come. But the vaccine trials as pieces of literature, when you look at the science, are looking very, very promising. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, to break down a basic study, it took like 30,000 people that volunteered for this, which God bless them, because that's, that's awesome. And they randomized them into two groups, those that would receive the vaccine and those that would not. And everybody involved is called a randomized, double-blinded controlled trial. Everybody involved, including the doctors and nurses and techs, everybody's blinded to who gets a placebo, which is not medicine, and who gets a vaccine, which is the medicine. So nobody knows what they're giving these people. So there's no inherent bias. You're doing everything you can to take someone's opinion, because we've seen a lot of opinions this year. You take everyone's opinions out of the scientific equation and you just study the science. And 90 to 94% of people who received the vaccine had a significant protective immunologic response with the vaccine, which is huge. I mean, this is this is like on, on the stage of what we did with smallpox and what we've done with measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, and so I'm very hopeful. Uh, I am by no means an infectious disease expert. I'm just a frontline emergency physician who sees it every day. Um, but I think 
I, I think it's very promising. And I think that our country should have hope and should be very happy to know that in a very short time span, the world's greatest minds in medicine and science and virology, um, which obviously is involved in both hemispheres, um, they came up with a solution that looks like it's going to work. Well, firstly, thank you. And just to let you know, I'm going to put this episode out next because I think people need to hear it. You know, you've just spent 20 minutes putting common sense logic and firsthand accounts through, you know, an ER and ICU perspective that should have been heard six, seven months ago. So, you know, it's so good to hear that because what I've, I've been very frustrated. Of course, it's a real thing. Like I get to talk to, you know, doctors and nurses and medics and, you know, no one has said, oh, we're in the ICU and, you know, the, the COVID patients come in, they have a runny nose and then they, they walk out again. No, I mean, they're, when, when we hear about this end of life, uh, uh, you know, patients, it's, it's awful. You know, they're struggling. And one of my friends, Joe, that I just interviewed from my Anaheim crew, he got through it, but that's just it. He got, <clears throat> excuse me, he got through it. One of our other Anaheim guys got through it. But the other side of the conversation, which has absolutely maddened me during this, is there's undoubtedly this fear-mongering element. And even now, like we've shifted from deaths to cases. And I, th I love that, you know, morbidity side too. That should be factored in the numbers. Like how many people were significantly affected, like almost died, whatever it was, that should be part of that overall number. But now, you know, we're seeing that percentage shrink, doesn't minimize or take anything away from the severity of those people that really were hit hard by it or God forbid, even killed. But like you said, there's that fear element. And we've had a captive audience of the UK, the US, I mean, everywhere, you know, all over the planet. And here in America, all we've heard is not even, not even the elderly patients. Oh, there's this 26 year old and he had no underlying conditions. And that's all they're putting out there, which I think is so disgusting, you know, from, from a media perspective, because we need to hear the whole story. Like my grandmother's nursing home has had it twice in the UK. She's 103 years old. None of them have got sick or died. That story would never make it. You know what I mean? So what I want to see is we need, this is, there's no better time in the last, you know, decades to talk to people about underlying health conditions and give them the tools to be able to make themselves more resilient to not just this, anything, any sort of advantageous, you know, in, infectious disease that's going for a weakened immune system. But I just find it infuriating because it's been complete, you know, if you're not wearing a mask, you're a murderer. If you're not staying in your house, you know, that group that got together, they're the reason why now, you know, San Antonio is riddled with COVID. Is that really how virology works? I'm pretty sure as basal as my knowledge is, you can't trace it to one house party in, you know, the East End of London that caused the second wave. So that's obviously my opinion and I'll, and I'll enclose that as mine. But what have you seen as far as the last few months and the just the impact of underlying ill health and, and you know, the, um, you know, what should we be learning from that lens as well? Uh, you know, so, so many different things, I, you know, to start off with, I think one of the things that really, it, it broke my heart to see this happen. And, and, uh, when they started shutting down all the electric procedures and surgeries, I think in the beginning, we're now seeing some of the consequences of that now. So when, when we started shutting down, like in Texas, 
shutting down electrical surgeries and, and outpatient surgery. What that really meant was people that had a breast mass had to wait for uh, their tissue diagnosis and excision. People that have had struggled with uh, spinal uh, compression fractures and narrowing of the spinal canal, had numbness and, in their, and tingling in their legs and couldn't walk, they were going to have to wait on their spinal surgery. Um, all those things were halted. And in addition to that, what we saw is a huge consequence in, in the American Cat College of, of Pediatrics put out a study. Uh, the vaccines and the number of well-child visits dropped uh, by like 75%. Um, so we saw all these preventative aspects. You and I kind of talked about in preventative healthcare earlier, um, but that took a huge hit. So now what we're seeing and what I've been seeing more of, more so this year than any other year in my career, is I'm seeing these horrific consequences of, of not getting these procedures, of not getting these surgeries, of not having their preventative health maintenance scheduled and managed over time. Um, I've had some horrible stories of people that are so scared of COVID to go to the hospital that they stayed at home with their stroke. And so I'm getting strokes now that would normally come in the hour of symptom onset and they're coming in three days after the fact. And there's nothing I can do at that point. That part of their brain is gone. And that part of their brain has now died. And what they're left with is, is all that we can really salvage uh, through physical therapy. And the same thing with, with heart attacks. I, I had a patient the other day who had been having really bad crushing chest pain symptoms the morning before struggled with it all day, all night, finally came in uh, the next morning uh, to see me. And of course, with all the, the scientific evidence that I had on evaluating that patient, it was evident that they'd been infarcting uh, that whole time. You can't get those heart cells back. The heart cells and the brain cells, they don't grow back. They're not like epithelium or your skin where it can kind of grow back and heal. Once those cells are gone, they're gone. And so now because of that, we're seeing a lot of these uh, congestive heart failure patients now because they lost so much of their heart muscle from their heart attack. We're seeing a lot of people now who, because they had a big stroke and they didn't come in soon enough, of course, now their, you know, their ability to swallow and to speak and all that has been affected. They're aspirating their saliva and food now. So they're coming in with consequences of aspiration, pneumonitis, and pneumonia. So there's all those horrific extremes. And then um, the downstream effects of shutting down these procedures um, you know, people don't like to talk about money in medicine and I definitely don't. I'm an ER doctor. That's the whole reason I went into it. I didn't, I didn't care. I mean, half of my patients where I work are even are uninsured. So that's the beauty of what I get to do. I could take care of everybody, uh, regardless of, of their background or, or insurance or whatever. But, you know, hospitals don't stay functional and they can't keep the lights on with good intentions. They can't, they can't keep nurses um, and, and everybody working and giving them the medications they need based on altruistic, you know, uh, ideology. Um, it, it impacted a lot of people when you started taking away these diagnostic procedures, these elective surgeries, all these things that help hospitals run. The next thing the hospitals had to do as they start losing all this money is they had to start letting nurses go and they started letting techs go. And then, uh, over time, they, other groups around the country and even in Texas started letting physicians go. And so now you have this wealth of experienced, um, uh, astute, highly educated healthcare professionals who aren't able to work in these facilities. And so that was a consequence somewhere, I would say, around June, July, after all the things were shut down around March, April, May. And then come July, August, September, we had a bit of a honeymoon, at least where I'm at. The COVID numbers trickled down. P 
people kind of reached an, an intermediary thought process where they're like, all right, I'll wear my mask when I go to the grocery store. Um, yeah, maybe we shouldn't go and, and have this big birthday party. We'll just have a few people over. They started trying to make some lifestyle uh, decisions that I think helped buffer. But then, of course, the warning signs started coming out. Hey, this winter's going to be bad. COVID's probably going to tick up again. And so what I'm experiencing now and what everyone across the country is experiencing is that when you hear that someone has bed shortages in a hospital, what you're not hearing is most of the time it's actually a nursing shortage. They may have physical bed space in their facility. They have no one to take care of those patients. And it's because of all the financial decisions that were made in the spring. And so what I'm seeing is this avalanche of decisions that we made early on that were an attempt to try to salvage space for COVID surge of patients ultimately financially killed the healthcare industry to where they had to let go of all these people. And now we're all short. We're all short on beds. We're all short on nurses. Um, we don't have necessarily the personnel that we need. Um, and not really just my facility, but just in general across the country, you see all the physicians and medical directors talking about the same issues. Um, and it's something to where I hope the world learns from this and realizes that you're going to have to come up with different staffing strategies. You're going to have to come up with emergency funding for hospitals and healthcare when you go through something like this, because you can't afford to lose these people because you're going to need them, you know? And so now we're left with having to board, uh, emergency department patients, um, in, in the ER, which is not really where you want somebody who needs to be in the ICU. You don't want them in the ER. Um, you know, we're designed really to save someone's life and resuscitate and manage them for the first six hours or so, uh, of their care. And then when they're that sick and they need an ICU study after study after study has shown that the faster you transition someone from the ER to the ICU, um, and they can have that one-on-one -on -one nursing and all the protocols are, are, are initiated, patients have better outcomes. Like we know that. And so now every hospital is struggling with the fact that there are no ICU beds, there are no nurses. And I think that's what we're seeing now. And so it's, it's been this very bizarre evolution to kind of watch uh, over this year. We have scientifically become much more uh, refined and astute at managing COVID and at um, identifying patients that are about to um, collapse with their inflammatory cascade. We've gotten very, very good at the science, but our resource management has been suffering. And so now we have to kind of rebuild that over time and I think the states were all trying to do that at this point. Um, and I think that uh, hopefully that will get better over the next couple of months. Yeah, that's another interesting perspective that I haven't heard before, but I've seen. You know, in New York, they were leaning into their medics and then they went and cut a bunch of them. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy. And I, I kind of see see some of the you know financial decisions behind that now. But the other area that, you know, for me, through my lens that just, isn't being discussed is you know and i'll ask you this if right now we have 70 percent morbidly obese or um overweight you know uh population among 70 percent of the u.s what would the mortality rate look like if we had taken that seriously and we were you know a much healthier population would that have positively influenced influenced the actual outcome of some of these deaths a hundred percent i think that would have impacted both morbidity and mortality I think that, you know, if you look at someone who is deconditioned uh, from a strength and um, just kind of a, an aerobic kind of conditioning standpoint, um, you lay them up in bed for two or three days, 
they're going to do very poorly. They're not going to be able to even eat under their own strength. They're not going to be able to walk to the commode. Um, you know, another beautiful story in your book that you brought up was the elderly woman of the Pearl Harbor uh, uh, fighter pilot and how she was just so weak and deconditioned, she just couldn't even make it to the restroom. You know, and, and you kind of detailed what it was like to try to help her and clean her up and, and whatnot. And, and now now multiply that by 100, and that's what we're doing to, to all these people that are laying up in an ICU bed or a hospital bed for days at a time. And so I think that, you know, managing high blood pressure, we knew that was a, a huge risk factor for bad outcome in COVID. Managing hypertension right off the bat is, is crucial, extremely important. Uh, managing obesity, extremely important. Diabetes, the same thing. Um, pulmonary diseases especially. I mean, COVID is a lung virus. And if you're smoking and you, you have COPD and emphysema or, you know, you just took up smoking for the first time, I mean, now's the opportunity to quit that altogether. And if you have been smoking for a long time, it's never too late to quit smoking. Um, you know, there are tons of studies out there and there's even pictures out there and all these anti-smoking campaigns, um, where it shows how quickly lungs can improve in a matter of months, even in someone who's been smoking for 20 years. All those are preventative healthcare measures that we should be making a priority. Uh, obesity needs to be a big deal. You know, they're cutting out physical education and recreation time in public schools across the country. We need to regain that. That actually needs to become a huge focus. Um, is really pushing physical education, really getting people out into sports, getting them out of the, off the couches and out of the chairs and outside again. I mean, that is a lifestyle lesson you can teach children now so that their generation won't struggle with obesity to the degree that we're seeing right now. But I, I do agree, yes, 100%. If, if obesity was even half of what it is right now in our country, um, and, and if we manage high blood pressure, um, you know, 10 times better than what we're doing now, the outcomes would have been completely different. Um, colleagues of mine that, that have been working up in New York and around Harlem, for example, it was just absolutely killing them because, I mean, they're just devastated because so many of the patients that died from COVID um, almost had an identical medical sheet across the board. You know, 50, 60 years old, um, uncontrolled hypertension, uninsured, no access to primary care, um, and it was the same outcome over and over and over and over again. And that was that's a huge glaring lens on a gap in our medical care in America. Um, we don't do preventative health care well at all. Um, the emergency department has become, as, as George Bush said, um, you know, a safety net for society, and that's fine. I don't mind being the safety net, um, but we really need an infrastructure that is available to everyone to help them uh, with those issues. You know, we call other diseases in the human body that die from COVID, we call those comorbidities. So there's that word morbidity again. These are comorbidities that people are, are suffering from in addition to COVID. Um, and I think that if we can make that a primary focus moving forward, um, we would see a huge impact next time something like this comes around. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And thank you for, you know, being the, the first hand witness. You know, I think people need to hear exactly what you just told us. There's many things that you've discussed that I wasn't aware of until this conversation. But, you know, I think that's, that's just it. I mean, morbidity not only creates resilience against this, but I mean, I've talked about this a few times with some of the, the military guests. What if we're invaded right now? 
who are we leaning to? Who, who, who's going to strike fear into the enemy? It's probably not going to be the, like you said, the 50 year old with diabetes and hypertension that, you know, is, is morbidly obese. So we have to think if we truly care about this nation, if you truly, for example, and this isn't a political statement, if you think Black Lives Matter, then march for healthcare, march for prevention, march for, you know, obesity and, and diabetes and those things, because those are taking so many more lives than, you know, than some of these, uh, horrendous, uh, you know, atrocities that we've seen in, in law enforcement. And let's not, you know, let's be honest, in medicine, in, in EMS, all these mistakes that many of our peers have made, which are an absolute minority compared to the lives that we've saved or the protection that law enforcement does. But if we truly care about lives, and the same with COVID, then let's address the half million people that have died from smoking and obesity-related deaths in exactly the same period. I mean, it's, I just, I think we're in such a, bizarre swing of the pendulum of healthcare right now where we look at the most extreme versions of something we look at the end all consequences of something and yet when you look at every life that's lost you can go back in their timeline over the series of the last couple of decades and you can almost pinpoint exactly where you could have made a difference in retrospect and that's really what preventative health is about is identifying that point before all those things happen. And, and that's why there's all these criteria of how do you identify early hypertension or borderline hypertension? How do you identify changes of the heart? You know, there was a really, really good study um, that, and I'm, and I'm forgetting the details, so I apologize. I'm sure somebody out there will look it up after they hear this, but um, they looked specifically at young African-American men um, and a very simple test. It was about assessing hypertension. And so they would have a blood pressure done and an EKG. And in almost 50% of these 20-something-year-old African-American men, you could already see changes in their heart just on the EKG. You know, we call it left ventricular hypertrophy, right, or LVH. And you could already start seeing LVH on the EKG in their 20s. Well, it doesn't take a genius to, to explain to you what that person is going to look like when they're 45. And, and then, so now you fast forward and now you have a, a 45 year old man who is wearing two liters nasal cannula of oxygen and is on multiple medications because of acute decompensated heart failure and in a large heart or what we call a cardiomyopathy. We should have made the difference. It, it, the, the time to make the difference for that patient is not when he's 45 and giving him insurance to pay for all those medications now. The time to intervene was back when he was 22, and he had his first blood pressure of 145 over 95, and he had an EKG that started to show some early changes. That is where our country has to go. That's where we have to mentally start focusing on helping our citizens and our people. Um, and, and there's stories like that in almost every single disease entity that you can think of. Um, and, and identifying that at that moment could change that person's life forever and the lives that they intersect with and that they, they are involved with. Um, you know, and it's just something that we need to make that a focus. I'm hoping that once we kind of get past the worst aspects of COVID. I'm hoping that all the vaccines are very successful. Um, I'm hoping that we can save lives with those vaccines. And then we can really start drilling down and saying, okay, there's going to be another virus someday. 
something's going to come down the pipeline. We know these are our susceptible patients in the population. Let's help them now. Let's make a difference now. And then what happens is that there's always the, the puppeteer, the person that controls the purse strings that ultimately impacts policy implementation and change. But when you can take numbers now and show them, it would have been a lot easier, um, you know, when you, when you have an ounce of prevention, right, versus worth a pound of cure, you have to make that same argument to the financially minded people and say, hey, there's a really good opportunity now to start somebody on a very, very cheap blood pressure medication. Let's make that affordable. Let's make that happen for this person. And you won't ever have to put them, uh, not nearly to the degree that we do now, on, on eight medications, and they're not going to have to visit the ICU three times a year instead. And making that financial argument, I think, also has to be part of this discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, mean, I couldn't agree more. I think that's the prevention, you know, you can apply to drug prohibition and prevention you can apply to, uh, you know, bolstering schools in inner cities and, and, you know, just like you said, the education. Imagine if all our children from now moving forward were taught about food, like where they came from, healthy farming practices, how to cook, you know, the exercise was focused more on wellness and exercise and fun rather than elitism in a certain sport, which, you know, you hear all the Uncle Rico stories over and over again, these poor collegiate or high school <laughs> athletes that have absolutely smashed. And they were, you know, let's say they were in great shape in college. Now they're 150 pounds overweight, hobbling around with their torn MCLs and, you know, all this stuff. Um, that's another area. Like, you know, we've got to think about wellness versus fitness too. But if we start at the very beginning with a generation that understands mental health and physical health, we truly could change the world. But we have to get away from you know, looking at, at health from as a profit-based system and, and put a lot more money in prevention. You can make a huge amount of money, but let's make money on the right things, local farming and all these things that are going to create a healthy, resilient population. No, I agree. I agree. Right. Well, transitioning as far as, uh, you know, security of the, the nation, I, I want to obviously walk you through the, the military side of your story. But so let's start at 9-11, kind of where you were and, and, and why that started that journey for you. Um, so, you know, a lot of people can remember where they were that day. Um, my team and I, we were med medical students at uh, LBJ County Hospital in Houston. Um, that's uh, Fifth Ward, Houston. Um, and uh, we were we had been up all day, all night, and now into the following day, um, and rounding on our patients and going over post call stuff, and all of our pagers started to go off, and and that's when we suddenly realized the towers had been hit. Um, and you know I think at the moment at that time a lot of people were trying to process what was happening. The towers just got hit, then the Pentagon, then then a plane went down in Pennsylvania, and we all collectively thought that Houston was going to be a target, Chicago was going to be a target, L.A. And so uh, all these alerts started going off. They started preparing for mass cows. They sent the med students home to get some rest because they thought they would have to bring us back in later. And then, you know, thankfully it, it stopped in, in Pennsylvania and that was it. And so like you know, all other Americans for weeks, I sat there and watched all these horrible uh, images of, of uh, our countrymen and women dying uh, at the hands of, of, a, of a terrorist act. And so, um, you know, it, it, I wanted to, I wanted to do something. Um, you know, I, I kind of mentioned to you before I was going to join the Navy out of high school, but I, my, my uncle, um, my grandmother's only son had uh, been a fighter pilot in Vietnam and was shot down then. And, and so it was very much something they did, they did not want me to do. And so I'd always kind of had that in the back of my mind and didn't pursue it. 
and that same kind of sense of patriotism and, and, and need to serve uh, came up again after 9-11. And I was getting my oil changed um, at one of the stations there in Houston. Um, and a guy had just gotten out of the Marines and he was telling his friends he was going back in um, specifically because 9-11. And I just remember thinking, what am I doing? I, I need to do something. I, I can do this too. And and so that's when I started reaching out and, and started talking to recruiters. I actually drove uh, my vehicle that day over to a strip mall that had the Marines, the Army, the Navy recruiter stations all right there. Um, and, um, you know, I was, uh, granted, I was an idiot. I, I was very naive, but I had a lot of heart. And I felt like, well, we're going to go to war and I want to be on the ground where all the action is and I want to take care of people. Uh, I'm going to join the Marines because I know they're going to be uh, first ones out there. And uh, the Marine recruiter kind of laughed at me because, you know, they don't have a medical department. <laughs> they they use the Navy. Uh, and I was like, oh, man. And I didn't want to be on a boat in the Navy. So then I literally walked to the Army recruiter's office and introduced myself. And that's where it all started. Um, I um, I was so upset about 9-11. I, those feelings of helplessness that I had, you know, with Joseph and Billy that I mentioned before, came back kind of full force and I, I needed to be there. I needed to do something. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, at the time the, the medical schools were holding people's medical school spots. And I thought about maybe just either transitioning to a military medical school or, or whatnot, but then the recruiter kind of talked me through it and advised me to, you know, to finish up the next year and a half that I had and, and, uh, and whatnot. And it was going to take time. And, and because when you're a physician in the army specifically, you're going to take care of generals and colonels and all these high ranking officials. So you go through a lot more background checks and security measures uh, than, than other people would. But when all that was said and done, um, I got commissioned uh, a few months into my intern year, October 4th, 2003. Um, and then my grandmother, uh, I didn't want to upset her. So I made sure that uh, she didn't know. And then when she passed away on Thanksgiving that year, uh, I waited till after Christmas and I told my family. And of course, my, my mother was very upset, <laughs> but um, but I felt good about it. It was a very proud moment in my life um, being able to join. And then for the next nine years, um, I worked through the Army Reserves. Um, I was with the APMC, which is an augmentation unit uh, out of Fort McPherson, Georgia. That base is actually gone now, but I was a I was a 62 Alpha, which was what my AOC was, and I was a, a plug-and-play doctor. So if a unit needed a, a field surgeon or an ER doctor, then that's um, that was the process. Um, I was I was the guy, and so they we all be on deployment lists and stuff. And um, as everything went up, um, if you were the next on the list, then you got attached to the unit and you went, and that's what you did. Um, so with that, I got to do, you know, a lot of fun stuff. I worked with a lot of, a lot of amazing human beings. Um, you know, it, I, I will say this, you know, less than 1% of American citizens actually volunteer to join the military. Um, and it's astounding to me that 99% of a country depends on 1%. Um, and, uh, it, it, it's something that when you're around those people, um, who are all doing it for the same reason that you're doing it. Um, it's a very, uh, very much an amazing, uh, path of service. Um, and I, you know, I knew I was not going to be one of those cool guys. I was not going to be a hero. I was not going to be kicking down doors and, you know, hunting down, uh, the Taliban, but I felt like I could take care of those guys. I felt like I could take care of their, of their wives and their children. Um, and that would be my way of giving back to them. And so then I did that and I enjoyed it very much. I was, 
at one point I was with the 10th Mountain Division um, and then uh, spent a lot of time with First Cav at Fort Hood. Um, and of course, everybody goes through Fort Sam um, and just had a, had a really good time. Met a lot of really cool people. Um, I was, I was one of the physicians that, um, so you, you would examine everybody before they went off to special forces school or ranger school, all this really cool stuff, all the cool schools that I never got to go to. And so I was always so excited for them. And every once in a while I would run across one of them that made it. And, um, it was always neat to kind of hear their stories, but I just, I just loved it. I loved taking care of them. Um, when I was with the 10th mountain division, I was at Fort drum, uh, and I missed the birth of, of my first kid. Um, although I tried very, very hard to get back. Um, it is a story that is told often in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Not by you, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, you know, I, now I will tell you, and my wife will kill me for this, but it's okay. She loves me. Um, she called me early that morning and, and here I am, you know, at Fort Drum, there's, there's this thing called late fall snow and it's, it's when a storm blows over the lakes and it just goes right up the mountain range and just dumps all the snow in Fort Drum. And we were just, just blanketed with, with dozens of feet of snow everywhere. My wife called me that morning. It was probably 7.30 or 8 in the morning. And uh, she said, I'm feeling kind of weird. And, of course, you know, I'm 18, 1900 miles away. And I said, okay, well, go in the hospital and let me know what you think. Well, of course, she's a physician. And she didn't want to be one of those OB patients that went in, was told you're not really in labor, go home. She didn't want to be embarrassed, so she didn't go. And, um, and so, anyways, um, she didn't go in. And she kept calling me and telling me she felt weird. She was feeling pain in her back. I was like, oh, God, please just go because I've got to start getting uh, flights and everything. And so finally Mima, uh, her mom, came over. And I get this call now. So it started like 7.38 in the morning. So I get this call like 4 in the afternoon. Uh, they said I'm in labor. You need to get here right away. <laughs> so uh, needless to say, um, it, was, it was a bit of an adventure. And I finally got into Austin at around 12.30 that night. And I, I made it into the hospital and got to see them giving my son his first bath. But, of course, that was always something on her mind because I wasn't there for that. And then with my son, um, they were going to send me to Korea. And so I almost missed that birth. And uh, after that, my wife was like, OK, I think we're done. And so, I, <laughs> you know, it's, it's always a hard decision, I think. You kind of mentioned it before about choosing to leave something that you love so much, like the fire service or the military service. Um, but there is a point where you realize that the people at home have been supporting you this whole time and they also deserve your focus and your love and stuff. And so then I went ahead and, and, uh, and finished up my time with the army. Um, but it was, it was very, it was very rewarding. I enjoyed every minute of it. Beautiful. What year did you transition out? Uh, 2012. Okay. All right. So Taking you then to November 5th, 2009, you'd mentioned actually being at Fort Hood. Tell me about that day. Um, oh, man, that was that was awful. Um, it, to, to this day, it's still a hard day for me, um, and I'm sure for, for absolutely everybody involved. And I think that's that's very important to, to state right off, the, right off the bat. That day involved hundreds of people trying to save lives. And, you know, I just, I just kind of provided, you know, my, my limited perspective on it. Um, I was actually functioning as a staff at the trauma center in the County at the time. Um, the week before I'd been at Darnell, which is the military hospital there at Fort Hood. And I'd done some shifts there. And then I was at our trauma center, uh, which is the Scott and White Memorial hospital, uh, there in Temple. 
And uh, there's three pods there, A, B, and C pod. It's 45 beds in that ER. And I was an A pod staff. And they usually kind of get the sicker ones in the A pod. And I get a call from this colonel that I knew uh, at Darnell. I heard some rumblings. A, a medic had come in from a nearby town and said, there's this weird story going on that there's a lot of radio traffic that there's like 45, 50 GSWs on post. So, you know, 45, 50 gunshot wounds uh, on the military installation of Fort Hood. And I was saying to myself, I was like, man, I was just there. Um, maybe this is a drill. You know, we drill stuff all the time. You're always drilling mass cows. You're always drilling hazmat, biohazard, biochemical warfare. And they said, I don't know, it seems pretty serious. And then right after that, that's when the colonel called and he said, I, I can't call you on every transfer, you know, with Tala and stuff, you try to call for every single patient you send to the level one trauma center. Um, and Darnell at the time, I think was like a level two or level three trauma center. So they needed to send us all their sick and dying, their most critical of patients immediately. Um, and so of course, you know, I accepted and, and notified my chairman in the hospital and we started mobilizing for what was uh, going to be a, a mass cow response. Um, and, and so then, you know, that day just, just kind of seemed to go on forever. Um, we started receiving patients and, and Mike Cron was the director of trauma at the time. And he and I were getting all the rooms ready. The, the blood from the blood banks were showing up, you know, um, the ORs were getting cleared. Uh, we were shutting down the waiting room. Um, and we started walking through some of the calls, uh, that the, that the radio traffic was coming in with the helicopter crews and whatever ground crews could come in. And, um, you know, it, uh, you, you've been trained in field triage. That's always a very hard part of the job. When you look at someone and you go, we're going to have to black tag this person, you know, meaning they're not dead yet, but they're probably going to be. And so, um, there's a lot of other ones that we need to probably focus our resources and time on more. And that always feels bad because you naturally, you inherently want to go to the people that are about to die. Um, but when you're getting flooded with 20, 30, 40 patients at a time, you have to be able to focus on the ones that you can save and try to make the ones that you can't, you know, comfortable. Um, and I remember the first one we were getting was a gunshot wound to the head uh, who was unresponsive on life support. And I'll come back to that one. Don't let me forget because I want to talk about that patient. But I remember Mike and I were going, we're going to have to, all right, so that one, that one we're going to have to black tag, this one we're going to have to do this one. And we started kind of going through the kind of the dark process of uh, deciding what blood and what resource and what OR capabilities you're going to have for who you could save. Um, and um, shortly after we received that patient, um, neurosurgery decided to take, take the patient and thought like there was a couple of things they might want to try, and uh, they got him out of the ER pretty quick. And then the next one I got was you know, seven, eight gunshot wounds to the chest and abdomen. And as we started working through each of the victims, and they were all just riddled with bullet holes, I just remember thinking how they were bleeding everywhere, and we were cutting off all their camouflage uniforms and um, all these ACUs, these these digital camo uniforms that. You know, I had four pairs of those uniforms in my closet on the right side of, of the coat hanger. And I had just cleaned and pressed my last uniform the day before. So it was a very bizarre interaction mentally for me to see that, cutting all these off and, and you know, throwing them on the ground. And you start seeing the amount of trauma that these people had suffered. Um, but it was also very bizarre 
was that they were all very stoic, um, you know, very uh, mindful of what was going on, very respectful. Um, I remember some of the soldiers saying, um, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, thank you, uh, to the nurses that were starting IVs and, and doing all the things that they could, um, just being very respectful. And they were literally just sitting there hemorrhaging to death. And it was just, they were just very unique people. And I just remember thinking that it was just so bizarre for me to basically have a, a, um, a wartime uh, process taking place in my hospital, you know, on U.S. soil. And the next victim we had, um, it was, it was kind of sad. And, and he's, all these patients have done lots of interviews. Um, and so I'm, of course, I'm very respectful about HIPAA and private information, but this next one was very vocal and has been on national news networks and whatnot. But he, he actually worked with the shooter. Um, and, and they were pretty close and he gives a very chilling tale. You know, when, when the shooter walked in, um, he actually said hi to him, asked how he was doing. Uh, and then that's when the shooter said, you know, Allah Akbar and pull out a gun and start shooting. And I think what, what really started to hurt the most for me was everyone thought it was a drill because the gun that he used was an FN 5.7. And um, that's not a standard issue military weapon. It looks kind of like a toy pistol. Um, and they all thought it was a drill. And so for a moment there, like what happens to a lot of people in an emergency situation, everyone just froze like deer in the headlights. And it wasn't until he shot one of the victims in the chest and the sternum exploded that they all realized that it was real. And then that's when this patient told me he was trying to get out of there as fast as he could. He got shot multiple times in the back. He crawled through a door in the trailer, fell to the ground, and, and got shot again. Um, and so I had just taken care of him. And at the time, I don't know if people remember this, we really thought there was three shooters. Um, we didn't know there was just one. And the ballistic injuries that we were seeing on, on the people's bodies it was consistent with the story that there was three different kinds of firearms being used. Um, the, the FN 5.7 bullet is a very small bullet. It's a very, very fast bullet. It travels at a speed very similar to a rifle round. And so I would see injuries where the bullet would pass through and make a hole the size of a number two pencil. And then another wound where it would hit the femur bone and just shatter it like it had gone off with a grenade. And it looked like a rifle round. You know, the entrance wound would be small, the femur would be shattered, and then there would be a cantaloupe size uh, hole in the back of the hamstring. And so that's something that you usually see with a rifle uh, ballistic injury. And so it seemed like we did have multiple shooters, and we thought we might be getting more victims. And so when they first brought in um, the shooter, uh, I try not to use his name because I don't want to give him any kind of more glorification, but... They bring in the shooter. Um, they said this is one of the shooters involved is, is kind of how everybody was presenting it. Um, and, of course, he was he was actively dying. He was in hemorrhagic shock. And, and, of course, they've talked about his injuries and the pathology of his injuries ad nauseum on the national circuit. So it's all public knowledge. Um, and I just remember it was bizarre because it, it looked like there was already a U.S. marshal here. And this was just in a matter of minutes of the shooting. So I don't know if they're on post or if they were just stationed locally. There's multiple military police around him. And, and here, here the patient is, of course, he's, he's paralyzed. He's in shock. 
um, and they have him shackled to the gurney. And I just remember looking at one of the officers. I said, you're going to need to undo his shackles because I was preparing to move him up to the top of the bed to innovate. And there was this argument right there. And they said, well, what if he gets up and runs away? And I said, he's, he's not moving. It's, it's fine. Just get the shackles off. Let's go. And, of course, we're ordering all the massive transfusion blood. I'm ordering the RSI meds. We get another IV. We're getting ready to prep a central line. Well, he was in the B pod. And so the staff that was coming over there came over and said, I'll take over with him. And there's two more coming to you. So you need to get back over there. Um, so then I turned the care of him over to that physician and, and his trauma team and then went back to the A pod. It was an interesting thing when I reached down to move him up in the bed. We got his shackles off. His eyes were open the whole time. And I just looked at him as we were pulling him up the bed and it was just there was nothing there. There was no. He was awake uh, and he was alert. Um, he just didn't want to talk to anybody. And it was like there was no remorse there. There was no uh, grief. There was no understanding of, of what had happened. Um, I was in medical school when Andrea Yates drowned all of her children uh, in Houston. And I remember when we would discuss her case on psychiatry, uh, the void kind of look that she had at that time. And it struck me that he had the same look, although naturally for him, he wasn't he wasn't psychotic like she was. He was just uh, radicalized. And it was the first time for me to actually be that close to that much hate. And then to shift from seeing that and experiencing that and just kind of instinctively trying to save his life, going back to trying to save everyone else's life that he, he could care less about. It was a very bizarre paradox for me, but you know, things are moving so fast. So you're doing everything that you can. And, uh, and so then we went on and, and we had multiple other victims, uh, with that as well. And of course, when all the dust settled, uh, I think it was general Cohn at the time, uh, with three core there on post, he announced to the media that night it had been a single shooter. And that's when we realized that, that we had taken care of him and, and that was it. And of course, as you know, he survived. Um, and of course he was paralyzed and he's sitting in jail now on, on death row, but you know, the military, I don't think has executed anybody since the sixties. Um, so he's probably just going to languish there for forever. But the cool story about the gunshot wound guy to the head, a couple of days later, and here I was, I was just a major in the army reserves. The most high ranking officials I usually dealt with were like full colonels. Every once in a while I'd see a one-star general. Well, uh, Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, shows up with his entire team. And so it seemed like everybody from the Pentagon was suddenly at our hospital and they wanted me to do rounds with the chairman. Uh, and I'd, <laughs> I'd never been so nervous and I had no idea why I was nervous because he would keep asking me questions and everybody around him questions. He was a very, very kind man, very humble man. Uh, he and his wife were there uh, and did rounds on everybody that survived. And I remember... Um, one of the moments I started to cry and it was one of the moments I started to actually process what I've been struggling with for the last couple of days. We go into the room of the guy who had been shot in the head and he was awake and alive. And he started telling dick jokes to the chairman of the joint chief. Of staff. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I laughed, cried so freaking hard, man. I mean, I thought this kid was dead. I thought he was going to die. I remember looking at the gunshot wound in his head, thinking he wasn't going to make it. 
and just absolutely knowing he was going to die. And he's laying there in this bed telling dick jokes to the most powerful ranking member of the military of our country. And his fiance is by his side and the whole room starts cracking up. But that also tells you the resilience and the inner strength that our, our military men and women have. I mean, this guy should have died. He didn't. And not only did he not die, but he didn't lay there languishing. He started telling jokes. And I'm sure that was kind of his coping mechanism at the time, but it was absolutely amazing. And it was it was something that really rejuvenated me at that moment. Um, I needed to laugh cry at that moment because I hadn't for the last few days. And I don't think there was a dry eye in that entire room. And then doing those rounds, which I don't normally get to do as an ER doctor. I don't get to see what usually happens to my patients after they leave. Being able to go room to room and see each of our, our patients and see each of them starting to make it and starting to survive, even with all the tubes and the drains and everything else that we had done to them, was something that kind of closed the loop for me, which was very important. And it was actually from that time forward, when I take care of someone really sick that I'm worried about, I routinely now go into the inpatient side of the hospital, into the ICU, and check on them, see how they're doing. And that brings me a sense of closure. But that was kind of my, my perspective and viewpoint of the Fort Hood shootings and everything that had happened. Um, you know, the stuff that had taken place throughout that whole process was, was crazy. Um, journalists were trying to sneak into the ER by lying about being patients. Um, I had a family member who worked for the state department that called me, um, asking me things about patients, which of course I couldn't share. So I didn't, but, uh, they were specifically worried about the terrorist. Um, it was just a very, very bizarre time. I think for me, what I've struggled with since then that I've never really felt as a physician, I felt some guilt, um, for trying so hard, uh, to save his life, uh, the shooter. Um, and I don't know if that's very common, um, for, for combat medics or combat physicians to, to struggle with that ethically and morally. Um, I mean, it is what it is and it's over, but then, you know, just knowing that, um, at the time it was declared to be workplace violence. Uh, when it was very easy to see from the first minute that this was a terrorist attack, and and for people that argue of that that nuance, um, when it's a when it's a when it's a wound or a death or you're a casualty of war, the benefits that take place for you and your family are completely different than when it's just declared to be workplace violence. Um, and so, by calling it what it was as a terrorist attack. Um, and, and these were victims of combat would have completely changed so much for their families in that moment for the amount of support and the aid that they would have received. And I think that's why that also kind of bothered me, but that was, that was one of those moments that we, you know, we always kind of commemorate. We just, we had another anniversary, unfortunately, uh, of that date. And, um, a lot of us will still kind of talk about it and go through it and whatnot. But I think, again, like what you and I touched on before, I think that's part of the healing and just kind of processing out loud with your colleagues is very important. Yeah. Well, th again, thank you for, for sharing that story because, again, we, we just got the, the kind of media version. But I uh, I can't imagine what it was like to, to have to work on him. And I had a, a minute experience with a, a patient who supposedly had sexually you know attacked in some way his niece and I had to transport him, you know, and, and to me, we have two hats. We have the human hat and we have the professional hat. 
And at that moment, I was, you know, wearing the professional hat. Like, I don't know. I wasn't there. Was he falsely accused? Did he actually do it? You know, but there was a nurse when I went to offload him. The guy tried to grab the guy and he was still strapped to my stretcher, you know, just swearing at him and, you know, basically attacking him. And, and again, for me, it's like that's, that's a place for all the, the layers that are going to follow. The right people will find out the truth and, you know, justice will be served. But for that moment in time, if you got emotional, how would that have affected your treatment of the following patient that you also had to, you know, to take care of? Would you have missed something because you were so emotionally involved? Right. No, it's 100% true. I mean, you do, you just kind of go into that different, I know you've been there, you, your mind, you just put on your game face. You know what I mean? You just, you go into that zone mentally and you start rehearsing the dosing and the, where am I going to put a central line or where am I going to get IV access? Do I need to intubate them? What meds do I need to get beforehand? All that stuff. Um, and you start kind of going through that. So it, the good thing about all that mental rehearsal um, and practicing that mental rehearsal uh, does is in those moments you can function and you can function without emotion. You can just move logically through the process. And, you know, what I used to, uh, I was a staff physician there for years and I would teach medical students and, and young physicians and I would tell them, I said, it, it's not easy to process things in the moment. And sometimes you're forced, I don't recommend it, but you're forced to compartmentalize what you just witnessed because someone else needs you. So you have to take that and put it aside for a moment and move on. And then when the shift is over and the dust settles, then you have to start unpackaging everything. You have to start going through those boxes and you have to start dealing with it or else they start to pile up. But that's kind of what we all do is, a, is kind of a survival mechanism just to kind of get through the shift and get on to the next patient. Absolutely. Well, I want to I want to get to the book in a second. One more thing, because you just sent me this beautiful story of a law enforcement officer. And, you know, it's, it's a great kind of positive story to kind of offset that tragic Fort Hood story. Um, but, you know, it's also intriguing because, you know, I was talking with you earlier and then with the, my uh, other interview prior to this about termination of codes, notification of death, you know, this kind of conversation. But this story is, is that anomaly where, you know, you, you felt some almost higher power that this was, this was worth sticking with. You know, we have our 20 minute and call it kind of thing. So tell me, you know, tell me the backstory and tell me, you know, lead us through that particular code and then obviously the incredible outcome. Uh, yeah, he, it, it is a something that I come back to um, repeatedly, uh, especially on my hardest days. And what's funny is I've been coming back to that picture of he and I standing in the ER, uh, even now with COVID and everything taking place. Um, so this is, again, this is kind of me. I, I wear a lot of hats. I'm also the medical director of the uh, largest fire department in our county. And, um, and so it, it also involved my, my medics and I was very proud of them for how they handled themselves. So this was, and again, this, this gentleman is public. He's gone public with his findings. We actually did a, a commercial over it and talked about men's health because of him. But, um, he was a DPS officer and, and when they do their PT test every year, they have to do, you know, they can choose between a run or like a meter row. And I think he did like a 2000 meter row and they did some other things and got his heart rate up pretty fast. Um, and he's middle aged and, um, uh, he started feeling this bizarre feeling in his chest, like a tightness at first an achiness, a soreness that he never felt before. He got in his car and he thought, you know what? 
and he knew everybody in our community. We all know him. And he, he drove to Central Fire Station um, uh, and walked up to one of the medics and said, hey, I'm feeling kind of weird in my chest. Can you check me out? And they all knew him, of course, and they sat him down right away, and they just immediately did a 12-lead EKG on him, and he was having a heart attack. And it was, it was interesting because for him, it wasn't what he thought a heart attack should feel like. He's like, that's fine. I'll just drive myself to the hospital. Like, no, no, no. You need to get in the ambulance. Let's just get you in the ambulance. And he was like embarrassed. Like, oh, I don't want all the lights and sirens. He said, do I have to go in the ambulance? And so it actually took three paramedics to talk to this state trooper to convince him to get in the ambulance. And so that he finally did. And no sooner did they lay him down on the stretcher and close the ambulance doors, he immediately coded. He went pulseless immediately because of this massive heart attack he was having. And so they, they, they went into emergency mode. They started IVs on them. You know, this is tough when it's with somebody that you work with out in the field, and now suddenly you're trying to save their life. They switched gears immediately. They did a phenomenal job. Um, you know, and at the time, of course, they didn't even worry about intubating them. They just used a BVM. Uh, uh, they bagged them, got IV access, and they called it in. He was cardiac arrest and probably STEMI. So he comes in, and, and I'm the doc on. And um, you know, I don't recognize who it is at first because, of course, everyone looks different, you know, when that's happening. And it was one of our nurses who recognized him. And so the whole mood in the room shifted. And I actually, as we were running the process, I, I stopped everybody and said, OK, listen, we know him. We care about him. He means something to us. But we need to be the best people that we can be for him in this moment. The best thing that we can do for him right now is to do what we do well. And, and we proceeded. And, um, you know, we fought very hard with him. I shocked him multiple times, multiple medications. Um, you know, I tell people this all the time, people that are in rooms with me when I code people, you know, ACLS, uh, algorithms and protocols, it really have been boiled down to just a couple of simple interventions like epinephrine and good compressions and whatnot. But I always tell them there's lots of other drugs out there that we use and that, when someone's gone, you can't make them more gone. When someone's dead, you can't make them more dead. So give them medication with the benefit of the doubt to see if you're going to do something to shift their physiology and make a difference. And I mean, we threw, I threw the kitchen sink at them. And we continued aggressive CPR. And as it started to go on, you know, a DPS officer starts showing up. Uh, his wife got to the hospital. Um, of course, they moved her off into a waiting room area for family um, that has a loved one that's dying. And, um, and now we're 30 minutes into this and there's still nothing. And you'd asked me before, what made me keep going? It's a lot of things. I've been doing this for a long time. For one, his body was still warm. And for me, that's very hard when I'm assessing someone that's, that's dead, that I'm coding. I check their carotids. I check their radial arteries. I check their femoral arteries, but I feel all over their body. And he was constantly warm. I was like, man, he's just He's perfusing to some degree with our compressions. They're just, he's just not the cold, completely unresponsive patient that you normally see. I also felt like since he was a witness arrest, we had more to work with. A lot of times when people find people that are pulseless, we don't really know how long they've been down, but we do know that first six minutes is imperative for good compressions. And he got that immediately when he collapsed on the stretcher with the paramedics. So I felt like we had a lot to work with. Um, and I think part of it may have been personal. Um, I didn't want to lose him. I've unfortunately had to code and I've lost some people that I work with, um, friends of mine. And that's, that's a very hard thing to do. And, and so every once in a while he would give us a rhythm. We would get him out of V-fib or V-tac. 
into like a sinus tack and he would immediately deteriorate back into V-fib. So I felt like his heart was trying. And so we loaded him up with a lot more fluid, uh, started doing a lot of more aggressive push-dose epi. And some studies had come out recently about dual synchronized uh, defibrillation, where now instead of just one set of pads that you put on the patient's heart to shock them, you have two sets of pads. And then you basically thump, thump. I mean, you you defibrillate one after the other, and the idea is that you're trying to address the excitability of the cardiac uh, tissue to the point that it's suddenly responsive and coordinated uh, to normalize its beating pattern again. And we did that dual synchronized shocking, I think three times, and got them back. And of course, at that point, then I'm doing all the other stuff I got to do. Um, he was having a, a massive heart attack. We got him to cath lab. We immediately started chilling his body down, all those things. And, uh, he actually coded on the cath lab table again. And I remember I had to walk down this long hall from the cath lab to the waiting room where his wife was. And I know that this kind of comes back to my story about Billy early on in this podcast. Um, every time I go down that hall, I think about the hall that I watched my father come down when he had to tell me the news about Billy. And it's a very sobering moment when I do that because it prepares me mentally to go in that room um, to share bad news with somebody. And I think about how it felt when I heard the bad news. I think about how it felt waiting in the waiting room, not knowing what was going on with somebody I cared about. And I remind me of those moments in my personal life so that I can try to connect with the human being I'm about to meet. So you prepare yourself, and these are always hard conversations. You prepare yourself to go in the room. So I went in the room, but as I'm walking down this hallway, it wasn't a normal hallway anymore. I mean, there must have been 30 state troopers all in their uniforms, all with their backs to the wall, shoulder to shoulder, watching me walk down this hallway. So I felt like I was going through this gauntlet of state troopers just to get to his wife. They didn't say a word. And these guys, I don't know if you know anything about Texas state troopers, and I don't know if it's the same for every state, but I feel like the bare minimum to be a Texas state trooper is you have to be six foot five and have played in the linebacker in high school. They're all huge. There's these monstrous giant men with these 10 gallon DPS trooper cowboy hats. And um, I'm walking past all of them thinking, man, this guy's really loved. I mean, this is, there's, there's cop cars everywhere out in the parking lot. God, I hope he makes it. You know, all these things are going through my mind. I walk in, I talk with his wife and I, and I kind of break the news, but I go through everything. And, um, you know, it, she's obviously upset as, as you would expect. And, and we kind of go through all that. Um, and then the cardiologist calls me a little bit later and tells me his entire artery is blocked and they were able to open it up. I share that with her and that's it. I don't see anybody again. I finished taking care of all the other patients I've got. The troopers all go home. Three days later, I get this call from the intensivist that says, hey, um, do you know what's going on with so-and-so? And I was like, I was expecting him to tell me that he passed. And I was like, no, what happened? I think you need to come over here for this. And I was like, what's wrong? And usually they're calling me as the ER doctor to go over there and, and help out if I need to innovate somebody or whatever. They need some extra set of hands. And so I rush over there. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little choked up. Um, I walked in the ICU, and here's this man that I thought was going to be gone, and they had just extubated him. 
And he looked at me and he said, hey, Doc, what day is it? And that's probably the closest I've ever had to a medical miracle in my career. He knew his wife. He knew his job. He knew his name. He knew his birthday. He just missed three days of his life. He doesn't remember what happened while he was in the ICU. And I think it was actually July 4th, believe it or not. And I told him, and he looked at me and said, damn, isn't that something? I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, man. I said, it is something. And uh, his wife hugged me, and uh, you know, I hugged him. And it was insane because what people don't tell you, you see it on television shows all the time, but what they don't tell you is that, yeah, we get people's heartbeats back a lot. We get people back. We get what we call ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation. We get their pulse back, but mentally they don't necessarily return the same. A lot of them have profound neurologic injury from being down for so long. Um, they don't remember anybody. They can't talk. They don't have any, you know, they're a different person. And so for him to be so neurologically intact for me was almost unheard of considering how long we worked on him and we worked on him for, for well over an hour. And so weeks later, he came back. He said, hey, I just wanted to thank you. And that picture I sent you um, was a picture of him coming back to thank me. And I, which, I, of course, I said, you don't need to thank me. You need to thank, thank everybody, all the medics, everybody else. And, of course, he has. Uh, they did an award ceremony uh, with the paramedics that saved his life. He's done a very aggressive campaign on just what you and I were talking about, on preventative health care, staying in shape, managing high blood pressure and cholesterol, uh, early warning signs of heart disease, all those things. So he's actually taking his very experience and turned it into a tool to yet again help his community. And he's still out there working today. He's keeping our highways safe. Um, and he's just, he's just doing phenomenal. You know, you asked me earlier, why did I keep going so long? Most guidelines or recommendations will tell you that after 30 minutes, if you have no good pulse return after everything you've done, the likelihood of anyone surviving is 0%. And it'll fluctuate between 0 and 1% on the data. And that's why a lot of times we'll work somebody really, really hard in the field, but then ultimately call it, you know, and uh, I'll get those phone calls too, and, and we'll make a decision together. Um, I just felt like he wasn't done. You know, he, there's, there's another thing I don't talk about much, but when you're around death so much, you, I don't want to call it a sixth sense because people think I'm um, goofy, but there's a, there's a certain gut feeling when you're in a room and you know when that person's gone or when they're not quite gone. And I don't know how to put my finger on it. Um, I definitely, I don't make any medical decisions based off of that. I, I do all the literature and I do everything. I try to do everything above the standard of care. Um, but there's just sometimes where you look at them and you think they're just, their heart's telling me something. Like I can see something on ultrasound. Um, they keep going into a rhythm that I just can't, I can't sustain. Um, I'm missing a piece of the puzzle. There's something I can do here. Um, and then that's when I thought I'm going to do, uh, the dual synchronized. He's just got refractory V-fib. Um, and I'm going to, this is my last, my last Hail Mary. I'm going to do everything I can for this man. Um, and I just, I didn't want to give up and I felt like he was still in the room and that's kind of the part I don't like to tell people, but I felt like he was still in the room. Um, and I've been in a lot of those rooms when I feel like, uh, the person's not there anymore and he, he wasn't done. He was, he was, he was fighting hard and it was my job, um, uh, to lend him a hand and try to pull him out of that hole that he was in. 
And, um, it's, it's something that now, I mean, I lost a few patients a few days ago. Um, and, uh, I, I looked at that picture. Um, and I think, I think it's important for anybody who does this line of work, uh, wherever you are in the world, truly try to focus on the wins, focus on the ones that you did save. Um, you're not patting yourself on the back when you do that. You're not stroking your ego. You're really trying to remind yourself that it's not always a loss. It's not always this, uh, this shift work of despair. You need to remind yourself that you actually make a difference. You need to remind yourself that you have a purpose and that you're making a positive impact on your community. Um, sometimes your colleagues have to be the ones who remind you of that, but I keep this picture because it reminds me sometimes when I feel like I'm not doing a good enough job or that people are dying, I can't seem to stop it. Um, it, it, it invigorates me to the degree where I feel like I can go back and it's like, it just reminds me that I do all this stuff every day so that I can meet someone else like him someday so that I can save someone like him someday. And, um, that's, that's the piece that always brings it home for me. Beautiful. Well, it's just such an incredible story. And, and just to, to pull a couple of lessons for me, you know, out of that, um, firstly, like you said, throwing the drug box at him. That's what I've, I found, you know, again, so many of the, the arrests that I've walked into, GI bleeds, you know, airways compromise, you know, quadriplegic where you can't even compress the chest. You know, you just know, as you said, they're already gone. You know, the person that's white as a sheet, they had some massive blowout inside the body. Um, but I remember one that really haunts me was, uh, and I wasn't the medic. I was still, I think I was in medic school maybe, but I was an EMT and, you know, functioning. Um, but we had this gentleman and he'd had some sort of, uh, maybe shoulder surgery and, he, they found him unresponsive on the floor and my medic was working all his mega code, you know, criteria. And I said to him, like, hey, look, can we push some Narcan? You know, what have we got to lose? I mean, what if it was an overdose because of the pain meds? And I'll never forget at that moment I was at the head. And when he pushed it, I saw that life just for a moment. I saw him come back. But then, you know, he wanted to work through his other um, stuff. And I was like, just just push another one, push another one. But I couldn't, I couldn't get him to, you know, and again, I didn't know enough. I wasn't confident enough in my knowledge to really be assertive. But that's one of the codes where I feel like if we push some more, maybe we would have saved him. So such an interesting perspective. And like you said, with the, the dual synchronized um, defib, you know, that's something that we have in our protocols now. But what a what a great story for for that working so you know thank you for telling that story it's such a beautiful story but there are some really interesting lessons for medics out there to draw from that too well thank you yeah it was uh he's a pretty he's a pretty awesome guy absolutely well transitioning so we've heard you know i told you it was going to run over We're at two hours now <laughs> um we've we've heard <laughs> no, it's beautiful. But that's what I love. I mean, you know, people walk by you every day and have no idea just this one person's, you know, a, a, a couple of sound bites of their life. So that's what I adore about this project. But um, you found a very interesting way of, um, uh, you know, tell, telling telling a story through a story. So, so tell me about how you got into writing and then tell everyone listening about the uh, Hippocrates series that you have now. Um, yeah, so I, um, you know, I told you before I was, I was kind of the fat kid with glasses in elementary school and, um, you know, getting bullied and whatnot. And so I used to go to the library and I would just read and, uh, I, I had a voracious appetite for reading. And, and of course I was drawn into all the fantasy books and losing myself in another world and, and picturing myself as a hero. 
Um, and, uh, and so my, my love of reading and writing began back then. Um, and it continued on the way through high school and I had done very well, um, on some, some specific creative white writing courses and exams. And my English teacher was trying to get me to kind of go that direction. And of course, um, writing was also kind of a nice outlet for me when I was trying to deal with the grief of my friends in high school. And so then I thought as I was kind of floundering around that first year of college, well, maybe, maybe I'll pursue my dream of writing. Um, and of course my mom was, was scared to death because she thought I'd end up homeless, uh, if I chose that profession, but, um, it was still always there. And so I continued writing poetry, uh, and short stories throughout college. Um, and of course continued my love of reading and whatnot. And then, you know, medical school happens and everything kind of gets stopped for a while because you kind of immerse yourself in that world because you have to. Um, and then, uh, I started writing again. And what I found was, it was a bit of a cathartic process for me, especially after a bad shift, to sit down and write a poem, uh, or to to write like an, a, a short little uh, exercise on prose. Um, and what I found was that it was it was a way for me to relax after a really bad shift. Um, and so I, I feel bad because I feel like someone listens is like, man, this dude, this dude's life is sad. But a lot <laughs> of a lot of the things that have pushed me in life have been initially tragic, but I've tried to learn from them and, and grow from it. And so the last story I'll share with you from, from the ER, um, it was the end of a shift and I got a call that we had a, uh, a GSW to the head, uh, coming in emergency traffic. And of course I received the patient and we do everything we can and we work him forever. But of course it was obvious he had been gone for a while. Um, and so I go ahead and call time of death. And I go down that hallway again, and I go to visit with the family in the family room to break the news to them. And there's this little boy right there in that room, and his eyes are welling up with tears. And and usually you go and you introduce yourself, you get to kind of understand who everybody is in the room. He was the first one to speak, and he looked at me and he says, "My daddy going to hell." And it just it just stopped me dead in my tracks, and I started to tear up, and I could barely speak. He already knew his dad was gone somehow. Um, even having not been there, he knew his dad was gone. And it wasn't about whether or not his daddy was still alive, which is the question I usually get when I walk in that room. But he wanted to know where his daddy was now. And I was kind of put on the spot and I didn't want to hesitate. And um, I just looked at him and I started crying. I said, no, son, I, I don't believe God punishes those who suffer. And I just hugged him. And I think everyone at that point in that room knew that he was gone. I didn't even get to formally announce that he had passed. Um, but I didn't want that kid to walk away that day from the ER. And this random image of me as some stranger walking in a white coat, telling him this bad news that his dad was gone. Um, I wanted him to walk away with something. And it broke my heart to think that this kid somehow thought because his dad, uh, it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Um, that because of this impulsive act of, of this man that he loved as his father was somehow now going to be doomed uh, to damnation. And that really started churning the wheels in my mind as I drove home that, that evening. And I thought, it's not fair. It's not fair how the world looks at people with mental health. It's not fair how people would judge someone who, in, in the totality of that man's life, he was probably a very good man. And then he was struggling with depression and PTSD, having been a soldier. It's not fair to judge him that way. 
and that whole feeling of not being fair kind of traveled with me. And, and I've lost some very close cousins to mental health. Um, my, my great aunt committed suicide. So the concept of mental health in my family and suicide is very, very, um, uh, very personal for me. And so I sat down late that night, I couldn't sleep. And I just, I started outlining a story. And I, I usually lay down with my children at night or I had up to that point, and I would just make up fantasy worlds for them at the last minute. And they always loved uh, daddy's bedtime stories because we didn't use books and I just used my imagination. Um, and so I started taking all that and I just poured myself into this first book. And I created this world called Mutandur, which is the afterlife. And it's kind of a place for second chances for people who didn't quite get it right on earth. And uh, it's a balance between earth and Mutandur. And then there's the Indradul, which is paradise, and the Undavil, which is what we would consider to be hell. And um, after the great cataclysm, uh, Earth and the Mutandor were split, and all the magical beings and beasts had to travel back to Mutandor, um, which, of course, is a very simple way of saying why we don't have unicorns anymore on Earth. Um, but with that... Wait, we don't? <laughs> well, my Damn, daughter, the next you'll be telling me Santa isn't real. <laughs> Uh, my daughter would, would argue with me on the unicorn <laughs> thing, but I thought it would be, uh, I've always loved fantasy. Uh, my wife is Greek and Vietnamese. And so my children's, uh, grandmother, great grandmother actually was born in Sparta. So I wanted to do a little bit of a tip to the hat to my, my children's heritage. Um, um, hence the, the Greek. And I want to juxtapose the Greek and the, the old kind of, uh, UK, you know, Celtic, kind of Western Europe uh, sense of, of fantasy, hence the title Hippocrates and the Hobgoblin. And so it was juxtaposing these two uh, kind of classic tropes of, of, of fantasy literature. And Hippocrates, of course, is what we consider to be the godfather of medicine. Um, and, and so through that, um, I was able to create a character named Creed. I named a lot of the characters after my children in the book, which, of course, they absolutely love. Um, and, uh, with it, Creed is an emergency medicine physician, uh, big surprise there. And, uh, he, uh, is attacked. Um, there's a violent attack in the ER and he wakes up in the world of Mutander, um, where he starts to discover the world as the reader does, um, through the eyes of his best friend, Ojin, who's the hobgoblin. And, and so the first book is about Creed kind of understanding who he is and why he's there. Uh, he's engaged to to marry the princess Celeste, who is pregnant with their unborn child, um, and of course this child is 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 born of, of promise and prophecy, and and so through this Creed discovers that he's actually the leader of the Luxatio. Now, when I think about the Luxatio, so lux in Latin means light, and Luxatio in medicine means dislocation. Um, and so I thought it would be very interesting for the Luxatio to be dislocated from the light. And so the Luxatio, the way I describe them to people, is if you think of pivotal uh, people in history, when you think of Gandhi or Winston Churchill or Martin Luther King, what made them so impactful? What made them so pivotal in history? And why were they so uh, capable of bringing so much light into the world at a very dark time in our history? And for me, that represented the Luxatio. And so the Luxatio uh, come back life after life. 
Um, they live on Mutandur and they go back to Earth and they relive another life and they come back to Mutandur when they pass and they go back for another life after that. And so they're, they're constantly serving their fellow man and trying to help them get to paradise. But the one rule for Lexatio to accept that role is that they can never enter paradise themselves, which sets up a really uh, difficult uh, series of subplots, of course, for all the characters. They'll never be able to see paradise, but they willingly made that decision to save their fellow man instead. And so Hippocrates is, in fact, Hippocrates, who's come back to life uh, year after year, you know, life after life, um, and he starts to realize about himself. And so when I think about Lexatio, it reminded me of all of my colleagues. It reminded me of ER nurses and ER doctors and paramedics and firefighters and all the military men and women I worked with. And I started to think that every life that we spend is really a shift. It's a 24-hour shift on Earth. Um, we willingly give up our own paradise, our own sanctity, our own inner peace to serve our fellow man. And then we go home for a couple of days, and then we have to go back and do it all over again. And so when I started thinking of the Lexatio more and more as the people that I worked with every day, it became a very personal story for me. A lot of the characters throughout the book are people that I've loved and lost uh, over the years. Uh, I've been able to process a lot of my grief and go through a lot of things as I'm bringing people here. And it was just something that when I thought of it, I thought, how do I talk about death and mental illness and make it entertaining? And it's a very much a challenge because those are things, those are two main things that nobody ever wants to talk about. Like you're not going to walk up to your family during Thanksgiving and start talking about your funeral plans. Um, or, you know, you're not going to just start kind of blasting to everybody how you, you've struggled with bipolar disorder uh, and right now you're going through a manic phase. I mean, these are things that people feel societal pressure to not discuss or work through, but they're very normal aspects of life. And so I wanted to kind of normalize that and take some of the fear from that and actually give all of my heroes um, something that they had to struggle with. So Creed, our, pri our primary character, he struggles with PTSD. Uh, one of our other heroes has autism. Um, I have a lot of friends um, that, that have children with autism. And I thought it would be beautiful to give their children a hero, um, that they could really admire and enjoy. Um, and, and so on this series of events through the first book, uh, Hippocrates and the Hobgoblin, the child of Mutandur, um, it's, it's approaching that whole story and the, and the race is to get to Celeste in time before she has the child, because of course there always has to be bad guys. And so Latirum. Uh, I took uh, from the name of Letum, which is the personification of death. And so Latirum is searching uh, for his wife uh, and their unborn child. Um, as you move into the second book, which I've, I've given you a, uh, an early copy of, um, uh, you learn that Latirum is trying to free his brother Akram from the Undavale. And Akram created an altar when he, did, when he killed, he murdered seven of his immortal sisters and brothers to create the Cities Infernum. Um, and upon that altar, he was going to sacrifice another immortal so that he could ascend once more to the Ender Duel. And so the second book is about a race in time trying to get to these pieces of this ancient altar, trying to inhibit that. Um, I don't want to give too much away because by doing so with the second book, I'm going to give away things with the first book. Um, but I, I hope on the surface that people find it very entertaining. I received a lot of really good feedback about it. And I think for the people that it will resonate with, I think they'll understand a deeper layer uh, to all the symbolism uh, throughout the stories. Um, and so that's basically uh, Hippocrates and the Hobgoblin. Beautiful. 
No, I'm I'm very excited. So full disclosure, as we discussed before, I haven't read it yet. I'm actually going on a staycation, having tried to leave the country and all my plans (laughs) being shut down because of COVID. Um, So, (laughs) but I knew, I know it's obviously, you know, it's it's like Tolkien's work, you know, it's... 500 plus pages per book and you know i said i'm i'm in awe just of that because i struggled to write 180 for mine so <laughs> i don't know how the hell you do it but um yeah so i wanted to actually set some time aside where i was able to you know to be fully present but i think that the concept is incredible and and just like we've done today storytelling leading people into these very important discussions i think that you know films obviously do it can do it well sometimes but i think fiction is another great way of you know getting us to understand through storytelling so i'm very excited to read it well thank you i, I hope you enjoy it and as always i'm always open to feedback um and of course there's also an audiobook of the of the first uh story and then we're working on an audiobook for the second book as well so for all the busy people out there who are jogging or driving around commuting uh they can always just jump on the audible and, and take a look beautiful how did you select your um your narrator for it man i so this i gotta give a shout out for for cam scriven uh he's in london and um and Gemma humphreys and so when you go through so you know you're doing an audiobook now for your book you know i went through acx on amazon and what you do is you you submit an excerpt like a few pages of what you want to audition actors for um and you upload that and then you start getting auditions and then the first I don't know, 24, 30 hours. I had like 65 auditions. Um, and in the excerpt that I chose was as Creed wakes up in Mutander because I wanted the world to be new to the, to the actors as they were auditioning for it. And I sat there one night with a bunch of friends. We'd actually just watched the UFC fight and we sat down and started listening to all the auditions. And Cam Cameron was just amazing. His voice, uh, we just kept coming back to, to him and I really enjoyed his voice. And so I reached out to him and we agreed uh, on, a, on an audiobook deal and we moved forward with it. And he is so talented. He, uh, he did all the voices in the first book except for the female voices, which Gemma did. And just kind of an interesting side note, uh, he and Gemma are now dating. They, they apparently fell in love while doing the first book together. <laughs> what? That's <laughs> yes, brilliant. It's a, great, it's a great story. It's so hard right now because, of course – uh, the UK is really cracked down, um, and I keep reaching out to, to Gemma and Cam, and they're doing good, and Cameron's editing the second book, and, and he's done with all of his recordings now, but it's hard because they can't see a lot of each other right now, but uh, yeah, they're still very much uh, in love, and he said, it was so funny because Cam reached out to me and said, hey, I have something to tell you. I said, okay, what's up? Because we loved the first book so much, we agreed we were going to do the whole series together, and he said, Gemma and I are dating. He said, but, 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 he said, I don't want you to panic. I was like, I'm not panicking. I said, I'm happy for you. He goes, well, no matter what, we're still professional. I was like, that's fine, man. <laughs> but, uh, Why do they so, sound so pissed off in the third book? It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it, it, they're, they're just amazing. And, and I can't say enough about him. I'm, I think the thing about doing something like a book is it's so not medical for me that I get to work with phenomenal illustrators. So I worked with Colin Estrada. He did my book cover and some other illustrations. And you just get to work with all these very creative, beautiful-minded people that are not in the hospital. And for me, that's been a beautiful outlet. And they've helped bring my world to life, uh, for which I will forever be thankful. And it's just been a really, really good exchange. So I've enjoyed them very much. My goal, because I want to do some research, I want to travel 
the UK for the third book because there's some some aspects there where some other pieces of the altar are buried, and I really want to research some of them in person. And so I was going to try to plan all that this year, but then with COVID, you know, who knows? But uh, eventually, I'm going to be able to cross the pond. So yeah. that's my goal. Beautiful. No, I was trying to get there uh, next month, and then you know it, they just totally regressed. So I'm like, ah, shit. I thought I was going to have a little loophole in Ireland, but nope. They've uh, they followed it too. But again, you know, it's going to run its course. I think you know the political element will also run its course, hopefully. Um, but yeah, I mean, where I grew up, the southwest of England is where a lot of the kind of Tolkien. Um, you know, base stories are. We've got Stonehenge there. We've got all that stuff. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, oldie worldy mythical, um, you know, King Arthur, uh, style history is there. So yeah, that'd be an awesome place for you to go. I'm looking forward to it for sure. Beautiful. All right. Well, then transitioning to the closing questions, but staying on the same theme, we've discussed your books. Are there any books written by someone else that you love to recommend? It could be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Uh, well, I mean, and I, I'm not trying to toot your horn for you, but you wrote a really good book. Um, and, uh, I'm actually going to buy some copies for my fire station. And I'm also the, over the, the paramedic Academy. And I think your book is a really good book to read right early on in your career. Um, I think it's something that, um, is important for people to understand and experience right off the bat. Um, I think aside from your book, um, Lately, you know, I, when I was in the army, you know, um, I read as much as I could on every book that I could on Afghanistan. Um, and I think some of the stories that stayed with me most, and I think more because they really spoke to selfless service and honor and the things that I think we all look toward in a moment of crisis. Uh, but the first book I read was Roberts Ridge and it was about Neil Roberts, who was the first Navy SEAL that uh, had died on a mission that had gone really bad. Um, and then of course in Texas, we all love Marcus Luttrell and his book, Lone Survivor, another phenomenal read as well. Um, and I think those are phenomenal books. I think the other one I really liked, uh, was, um, I think it's the Lion of, of Kandahar. Um, there's just some really good books out there. I think right now, uh, for me, um, I like to go and read about people that, put others before themselves and I've kind of been on this long list of military reads right now that have been phenomenal beautiful thank you for that I've never heard of Roberts Ridge before so I'm gonna have to look that one up and then Marcus I was lining up to get on I, I need to kind of um, reach out again now this thing is slowly starting to unwind but I think you'd be an, an amazing one his twin the, the relationship between them and how his twin knew when he was hurt I mean that's a that's a hell of a story there oh it's just so powerful and um and the whole reason why I started kind of reading all those books is that you start reading about these stories of, you know, a team of, of six guys on, uh, you know, an Afghan mountain ridge and suddenly there's overwhelmed. Um, what, what do men do in that moment? What does a human being do in that moment? Because instinctively you want to run and yet they, they don't. They charge forward. They protect their brothers. Um, it's that selflessness right now that I find very appealing uh, that I feel like in some ways this year, especially in our country, uh, has been lacking. Um, and I think if people kind of got back to books like that and started reading about the amount of sacrifices our men and women have made for our freedom, for us to even argue out loud publicly with one another, um, I think there'd be a, a different sense of reverence. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely... Uh, 
definitely a very good book. Um, and of course, there's you start reading that and you'll start going down this rabbit hole of other books that are connected to it. Um, all phenomenal reads. Absolutely. I think the other part of the story that I, that I think the, the film did a little disservice to because they kind of downplayed it a little bit. But Marcus talks about it a lot in, in the book is the incredible courage that the, the local village had in protecting him, that the humanity overtook every other element. Was it called Pashtun Wali or it, it was a cultural when so they, were, they were taken into the village, everyone in the village would, would defend them to their death. Absolutely. Um, can you imagine doing that? I mean, someone just lands in Austin, Texas from, I don't know, Uzbekistan, and, and everyone collectively in that town decides to protect that one person. I mean, just the sense of humanity and dedication of that is profound. Absolutely. That's why I think anyone that's seen the movie, read the book as well. Yeah, there's so much more in it. Absolutely. Beautiful. All right. Well, then, same question. Is there a, a movie or documentary that you love? Oh, my gosh. Is there a movie or documentary that I love? I got Okay. So I got to tell you, this is where everyone's going to give me a hard time, I'm sure. My favorite movies lately have been watching all the Marvel movies. Um, not only seeing them all in the theater, but watching them over again. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't know about you, but after all the years of doing this, I can't watch horror movies. You know, I don't need to see someone's leg uh, detached at the, at the pelvis because I, I had that the other day. You know what I mean? I don't need to see dead bodies because I see that every day at work. And so I don't I don't do horror movies. Um, I don't really do rom-coms or any that kind of stuff. Though my wife likes to watch some of the stuff. But everything that my family has really been able to enjoy together, including my daughter and my wife, have been all the Marvel movies. I think for my wife and daughter, there have been – powerful women as superheroes, which, which is really cool to see my daughter get fired up, you know, when, when Captain Marvel shows up on the screen. Um, and, and so I think what we've rewatched those over and over and over again. And I love it because it's, it's all the stories of heroism that I like. It's escapism for me. It doesn't remind me of work. Um, I think, um, other than that, the other movie, um, that I watched was, um, Oh God, I'm so bad with names. Uh, Chris Hemsworth. It was based on horse soldiers. He was a Green Beret officer uh, in Afghanistan early on into the conflict. I felt like that was a really good movie, uh, and that's a really true story. That's a really great story uh, to read. Um, and going back to the book thing, the only thing worth dying for, I think, is another really good book to read. But that's that's what I like to do. I like to sit down with a bucket of popcorn and. And my seven-year-old sits on my lap, and my whole family's around us in the living room, and then, you know, we we pop in an Avengers movie or something and, and just kind of disappear together for a couple hours. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned about the, the horror movies. I've, I've had that discussion a lot recently. You know, I, I went through a phase when I was probably late teens where I was into that, and I literally had that moment one day. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? How is this entertaining that I'm watching people being you know, murdered and mutilated and everything. But post, you know, post this career, you know, I, and I don't think many people actually do. I, I don't think a lot of us lean towards that. But that's, I think, what a lot of people that haven't served, whether it's first responder, whether it's military, whether it's, you know, obviously medicine as well, um, don't understand. Like, exactly like you said, the last thing I want to see in a zombie movie is some guy swinging around a baseball bat and murdering whatever, because we just saw that. 
I've seen the 16-year-old that was a victim of, you know, um, a gang attack that now got his brains bashed in. So there's nothing cool. And I think as as a society, we need to take a step back and go, why do you feel like, you know, nine hours into your workday, you want to just pop in a movie about a bunch of teenagers being murdered in a cabin in the middle of the woods? If that's entertaining to you, then maybe you need to kind of look in the mirror and go, I need to shift <laughs> my uh, my focus a little bit. Exactly. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I absolutely could not agree more. Brilliant. All right. Well, any documentaries that, that spring to mind? Oh, not, not, not lately. No. Um, I, uh, I've been trying to stay with just the fun stuff. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well then next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and medical professionals of the world? Oh my gosh. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a really good list. Um, I mean, honestly, if you haven't had him, I think Marcus Luttrell, um, would, would be phenomenal. Um, I think, um, you know, having him and his brother on there, I think would be great. Um, you know, they're, they're huge heroes, of course, in our state, but I think across the world, uh, for what they do. Um, you know, um, Chris Kyle was, um, a very, very prominent Texas figure for us as well. He was also a Navy SEAL. And as you know, he was, uh, he was killed tragically, uh, with he and one of his buddies when they went to a shooting range and were trying to help out a, a, a Marine with PTSD. Um, uh, Mr. Kyle's wife, Tanya Kyle, I think she is just phenomenal. Her, I, I follow her on, on, uh, everything. And she's always posting very beautiful, um, poignant stories about her and Chris and, and related to scripture, but she and her children have had to find their way through the loss of, of, uh, Chris Kyle, uh, find their way, uh, into a, a life that is still meaningful and a life with purpose. Um, I don't know if you, if you've had her, I, I, I don't think you have, I haven't seen you post anything on her, but, um, she would be phenomenal. I mean, what a, what a great leader on resilience especially in this day and age. Yeah, absolutely. And she's in, I know she's part of the network of some of the guests I've had, and she's definitely on, on my list. So that's, uh, I'll take that as another suggestion from the universe slash God that it's time to reach out. So thank you. Um, all right. Well then, oh, and just as a, a side note, 12 Strong was the, the Chris Hemsworth movie uh, ah. with the horse soldiers. I was, I was racking my brain, so I looked it up very quickly. Uh, great film. Absolutely great it's film. It's a great it really is. I'm supposed to, I forget who it is now, but there is someone who I can be connected with who was one of those those men on that mission. So um, I've got to go back and look, but that's something that's been rattling around my head to follow up on and remember who it was. Um, oh, that would be phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, what a story, like you said. That was pretty much the first uh, first response post 9-11, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. All right. Well, then um, the final question before we make sure everyone knows where to find the books and find you online. What do you do to decompress? What do I do to get decompress? Yes. Oh, um, honestly, for me, it's exercise um, and, and rolling around on the couch with my kids, um, uh, sitting out on the back patio with my wife, having coffee, um, kind of watching the wildlife and the lake, um, those moments for, for me now, my home is, is kind of my, uh, my palace of peace. It's kind of, you know, Superman always had to go to the North to that crystal palace. I kind of feel that way now to re-energize. I got to come home and it's just, 
the best moments of my life now are usually in my living room. Beautiful. Absolutely love it. And how close are you to Austin and San Antonio? Um, I'm like just a little over an hour from Austin and about two hours from San Antonio. So not far. Okay. Beautiful. My in-laws are there. So when I am finally over there, I have to make sure I, I come buy you a cup of coffee. Oh, I'll, I'll buy you the coffee. It'd be my pleasure. Beautiful. I'll get you the, the, you know, I'll give you the feedback on the book. So we, I absolutely would love to do a part two of this so we can definitely then talk more in depth and I can actually, you know, give you my perception on, on the book as well. But, um, I uh, love it. For people listening that want to buy the book, want to reach out to you, where are the best places to find the book? And then where are the best places to reach you personally? Yeah. So, uh, you can go on Amazon. Um, and of course it's in Kindle format paperback. Um, and it's also an audiobook or audible in iTunes and, uh, Barnes and Noble also carries it online. So you can order it from Barnes and Noble. Um, my website is ponderingcorpus.com uh, and, uh, they can always visit that. And, um, I get a lot more interaction for whatever reason on Instagram more so than I do on Twitter or Facebook. So Instagram is a good place to kind of message me and reach out. And, uh, I think one of these days I'm going to have to set up a, some kind of business email for the website too. Um, and then that'll be working, but Instagram is probably the best place right now on messaging. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank you firstly for being so generous when we did the fundraiser with the book. And it's funny that you like Marvel movies because you got a Thanos signed, uh, and cable signed, um, so a book there. <laughs> but you know, you were incredibly generous that helped, you know, Sons of the Flag, Eric Marsh Foundation. Um, so thank you for that. But also, I mean, we've been talking, actually talking for almost three hours, but recording for two and a half. Um, thank you for, incredibly powerful story incredibly you know vulnerable i'm sure it's you know kind of ripped open some wounds but the value in this two and a half hours like i said i'm going to put it out as the next episode because between the covid um you know lens that you've given us and then all the other powerful stories i think this needs to be heard because it might even save a life the day it goes out so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today chris um, thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. It's, it's a pleasure meeting you and, uh, and, and working with you. And um, I look forward to future stuff down the road.